You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. I am Raven Rollins, and I am here again today with my co-host, Professor Mandy McNeely. Hi, guys. And this is our Valentine's Day special, where we are honoring the late Carla Walker by talking about her case. And we also have some special guests later in the episode, where we actually talked to Othram Labs. Um, David Middleman and Kristen Middleman. And so they're going to kind of give us a rundown on, you know, what happened later in this case. So stick around for that. We are going to go ahead and jump right into it. And uh, we're going to start. This is a case from the 70s, 1974. Carla Walker was a 17-year-old junior at Fort Worth's Western Hills High School. She was a very convivial person. I love that word. Miss Congeniality. Um, She was, quote, the kind of girl who smiled and said hello to just about everybody she saw in the hallways. That was from a former schoolmate of hers. They said everyone at Western Hills liked Carla. So she was, and she was short. She was just four foot 11. She was like a little spitfire. And she had the this thick honey blonde hair that fell below her shoulders. And she was dating a guy named Rodney McCoy, who was kind of tall, kind of wiry, good natured. He was quarterback for the football team. And so, you know, they were about to enroll together in Texas Tech University. They were like the id couple in their high school. They were pretty serious, weren't they? Yeah, they were very serious. You know, people had said that were close to them was that they were serious, like about each other. They were like completely and utterly in love with each other. See, and that's a great fun time in your life. Yeah. She had told her closest friends that she had no doubt she and Rodney would someday marry and start a family. So yeah, they were like it factor. And she is very pretty. Like if you look up pictures of her and he's a, was a handsome young man. Yeah. So they were a very yeah. cute couple. She had a great smile. Yeah. The evening of February 16th, Rodney arrived at the Walker's cozy home in Benbrook. Texas, and it's not that far from Fort Worth, to take Carla to their school's Valentine's Day dance. Now, when Carla walked down the stairs from her bedroom, she was proudly wearing that promise ring that he had given her, and he pinned her little corsage to her cute little powder blue dress, and then drove her in his mother's car, which was a 1969 Ford LTD, to the school cafeteria, which had been decorated with cute little pink streamers and pink hearts and stuff for Valentine's Day. I even found the theme oh. of their Valentine's Day, and the, the theme was, quote, love is a kaleidoscope. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. That's, like, pretty intense I for, know. for high school. I don't school. know that mine would have come up with something. No, it's, 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 yeah, it's a little deep. (laughs) And, you know, throughout the night, the students danced to this live band called Hydra. 
Which I don't know if it's, don't, it's still I around or honest, not. I don't know. I don't know that band. I found a lot of information on this case. Wow. <laughs> and when the event ended around 1130, Rodney invited another couple to go and, you know, ha- what we used to say, cruise Maine or whatever. Yes. Uh, every small town has a, a quote unquote Maine that, you know, we would drag Maine or cruise they Maine. They do. And yeah. the sad part is most places you can't do it anymore. I know. I know. We, we did have that in Ada even. And then... When I was in high school, we would drag Maine. So, but it wasn't like, I think that went out of style a couple years after because technology came up and people found other things to do. And well, and, but you know, police would shut a lot of that down too. I remember in Overland Park, we did that in Olathe. We had, it was just one block. And we would just drive around the block over that and was over a big and over. Night too, because yes. you'd see all your friends. Yes, you'd go to Sonic. I mean, that was yeah. the thing to do. They did it more for Drag Twelve Street. Yep. It's like famous. And then you would literally like there was a parking lot in between, and so some people would stop and park there, and you'd get out and hang out with your friends, and then then you would drive off the opposite direction and go around the block in the opposite direction. You know, it's funny because my sister, she's. Oh, Five years older than me, and she would make me hide in the back of the car as they cruised. <laughs> hide in the floor. She didn't want to be seen with you. No. <laughs> Aw. Well, so you can imagine how much fun they were having that night. I know. So Rodney invited another couple to go, you know, cruise with them, and it, theirs was Camp Bowie Boulevard, is what they cruised. Camp Bowie Camp Boulevard. Bowie Boulevard, and the Benbrook Traffic Circle. Is I I've, I don't know what Benbrook is, but I feel like if I looked it up on Google Maps, I would find this this Benbrook traffic circle. Apparently, that's what they cruised. After they did that for a little while, they stopped at a couple of teen hangouts. Other than that, one was a Mister Quick Hamburgers, and then Taco Bell. Oh, Taco Bell! <laughs> you know, it's weird because like you think about it, and you're like, has Taco Bell been around that long? Like, it's crazy that it's been around that long. That's where everybody went at that age at late night. That's where you went. You go get some food at Taco Bell. Taco Bell. I know. Um, And so then later, after dropping off the other couple that they were with, they drove to a nearby bowling alley, which was called Brunswick Riglia Bowl. And they only stopped there because she needed to use the restroom. And so when she got back in the car, they started making out a little bit, getting a little hot and heavy. And Carla had, they were both in the front seat. And you have to imagine this 1970s style car because cars back then had a lot of room in them. Well, and there was no middle, middle console right. no, in it, the front. What do they call those? Um, bench gear, seats. And they had gear shifter. You shifted gears on the... Right, on near the steering wheel. Yeah. Right. And so there's like a lot of room in the front seat. But, okay, so there's a lot of room in this big car. And they're getting a little hot and heavy. And Carla leans backwards and puts her head up against the door. And she's kind of laying down with her head on the door. And she uses her purse as a pillow to put underneath her head. Because but there was not a lot of insulation in these doors. So mm-hmm. you're talking about just like head on metal almost. Yes. Yeah. And of course, Rodney gets on top of her. They're making out a little bit. And then... Out of nowhere, the passenger side door flies open. Now, remember, this is later, way later in the evening. It is dark by now. Yes. And they had left the dance at 1130, stopped at all of these different places. So we're talking early a.m. now, if not around 
you know, it, it had to have been after midnight by well, this time. Well, and you have to remember back then, too, there were not the cameras in the parking lots. There were not there lights wasn't even, yeah, everywhere. Was about, yeah, I was about to say, very many lights in parking lots so back then. So, things were a lot more remote yes. as far as lighting and technology, especially back then. Yes, absolutely. So, the passenger side door flies open. The purse and Carla kind of go out of the door a little bit. And Rodney looks up and sees just a glimpse of a tall man with brown short hair. He also later described this person as wearing a vest. I'm not sure. Like, I guess he just... And then there were some descriptions where he said this guy was wearing some sort of cowboy hat. And then other descriptions where he doesn't remember the hat. Well, and I know, you know, I've watched where he's actually testified saying that the the perpetrator was so tall he couldn't right he couldn't see all he couldn't see very well to see exactly what he and he was laying down on top of her and it kind of shoved his head out i think into the little yes between the chair and so when when she kind of fell out backwards you know i I would say from shoulders up she kind of fell backwards Mm -hmm. the purse fell out and he was right there you know they were kissing and stuff so that part of him also kind of fell forward he said he was holding on to her yeah what happened was and this all happened very quickly from you know from his testimony this man began hitting rodney over the head with the butt of a pistol at some point and we'll talk about this in in more detail later, but at some point the gun's magazine clip dislodged and fell into the parking lot. So then this man grabs Carla while Rodney is discombobulated and pulls her out of the car. Rodney at this point is barely conscious, but he hears this man say, you're coming with me, aren't you, sweetie? And then she says, Rodney, go get my dad. She says it multiple times. That's the last thing that he hears before he passes out. And I know that he testified that she had, that he thought she said, stop hitting him when he was hitting. Yeah. Him at gun. some point. Yeah. Yeah. He just, he didn't know when, because he literally had just gotten pistol whipped. So he couldn't say how quickly all of this happened or even how long he was unconscious for. You know, that's the thing when, when you're hit with something and you're in that moment from that trauma it's really hard to sometimes you get miscombobulated really easily. Mm-hmm. And so he probably was having a hard time even focusing. I would assume. I mean, I don't know, but I'm just saying. From from the wounds that I saw, um, the, the photos of the wounds that I saw, it is a wonder if he didn't have a concussion. I know. Yeah. Because he was, he was pistol whipped several times. He had scratches and, and abrasions and stuff to his face, and he even said right before they, right before he fell unconscious, he heard the clicking of a gun. Mm-hmm. He heard click, 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 and he knew that this man had pointed the gun directly at his face, and then he passed out. So very scary interaction. He passes out and he later comes to, when he comes to, it's around 1 a.m. Or so he thinks it's around 1 a.m. He gets up, gets behind the wheel, and he speeds to Carla's home. Because the last thing he remembered was her saying, go get my dad. He's still somewhat discombobulated. That's what he does. So he races to the Walker's home, which was actually less than a mile away. 
from where they were parked. Wow. I, I know. He drives up over the curve onto the front of the lawn, slams on the brakes. Carla's parents, Leighton and Doris, were still awake. They were playing dominoes in the dining room. It's probably some... hard for him to drive. Yeah, yeah I know. Right. Trying to um, play dominoes in the in the dining room with some relatives. Carla's little brother, Jim, who was 12 years old at the time, and her older sister, Cindy, who was 18 at the time, they were in the living room watching TV. So they hear someone banging on the front door and they are kind of stunned when they go and see that it's Rodney and his face is like dripping with blood and he's like kind of panicked and frantic and he says, quote, Mr. Walker, they've got her. Like he shouted that at him. And he also says, quote, they're going to hurt her bad. See, and from the picture of him. And he's just a kid. He was like 17. In the picture of I've seen of his shirt he had on that night, there was quite a bit of blood. Yeah. His own blood. He blood caught a lot on his shirt. Because he never states that this man harmed Carla other than, you know, just abducting her. Yeah, there's he, no evidence He that. took it all out on mm-hmm. Rodney. Which, if you think about it, this perpetrator is brazen enough to attack a woman, although very small woman that he could handle on his own, he still attacks this couple who are together with a, you know, quarterback, larger young man. And he, you know, he had to have known he had to take him out really quickly. So when he opened that door, he literally focused all that he had on Rodney. So Layton, Carla's father, was a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. And he just immediately grabs his pistol and they go back to the bowling alley. And so Doris from home dialed the operator on the family's rotary phone. Yes, it was that long ago and asked to be connected to the police. Officers soon arrived at the scene and searched the parking lot. Of course, they found Carla's purse. They found the magazine clip that had been ejected from the weapon and Other cops started driving, you know, around the streets and kind of, you know, trying to get a a feel for if they could see anything. They're scanning for any sign of Carla. Uh, Because I do want to state that, you know, he did pass out quickly, but he also never mentioned actually seeing her being put in a vehicle and there was no description, anything like that. So they really didn't know what they were looking for if he had abducted her and was still on foot could still be in the area or if you know he had put her in a car and taken her somewhere after the sun rose more joined the hunt so they had been you know this small squad had been searching all night more joined the hunt in the morning they were using binoculars and a few, you know, circled the city in helicopters. They were like legitimately looking because this was considered to be an a legitimate abduction. Detectives visited the high school, you know, come Monday, and they studied, you know, contact sheets of photos taken at the dance, looking for anyone who might have been out of place. They stopped kids in the hallways, asking if they knew anyone who would want to hurt Carla, if they saw anyone at the dance, if they saw anyone, you know, when they were hanging out at all these places. And they end up with nothing. So I want to take just a few minutes to talk about Fort Worth in the 70s. So in the early 70s, Fort Worth's population was around 400,000. So even big back then. It was big, but it was less than half the size that it is today. 
Local boosters promoted the city as safe, family-oriented, a haven for families. And, um, you know, a lot of people said, even Carla's sister said, quote, in our neighborhood, people didn't even lock their doors. We hear that so much. People didn't lock their doors because nothing ever happened here. I mean, you still hear it with cases. You do still hear it. I think it's such a, a myth because if you look back at the history of man... It is a gruesome history. There has always been murder. There there has always been rape and sexual assault and stuff like this. And I think that it's it's always been like this shrouded veil to think that nothing can happen in your neighborhood or in your town. And people think it's, it, they really don't think it's going to happen to them. That happens right. to everyone else. And, right. and that's a common way to think. And right. if we thought It doesn't it, happen in our town. Well, yeah. if we thought it was going to happen to us every second, we would be on constant alert. Right. Um, and so it's not that we want you to be scared or be, you know, but we just want you to be vigilant. Just be vigilant yeah. and lock. Your, I don't care where you lock are. your doors. I don't care if you are lock your car doors, lock your home doors. It does not matter. Lock your doors because this, something that we, that I just discovered that I should have been more aware of is the sliding glass doors. I have one of those. And then we saw in this Idaho stuff that they're very easy to break into. Yeah. Like, get a like bar. stupid easy to break into. So get a bar, you know. Get something to put in the bottom. Take, take precautions. The bar and something to put in the bottom of it at night, um, in the bottom of the railing. Mm-hmm. So it that there's two it sits deterrents in there, right? And so it's it's just please make yeah. sure and you know get longer screws for your your deadbolt in yeah. your front door and your back door. Um, that will help protect from that plate right. getting busted off. Just lock your doors, please, <laughs> please lock your doors. <laughs> Take precautions. Cindy also said, quote, I know this sounds strange, but we were so naive about crime back then that we simply couldn't imagine that Carla was dead. We figured that someone was going to drive by the house and drop Carla off and we'd all move on from there. Where I think that a lot of us are naive to the fact that things like this can happen to us. Well, and when you're that age, I remember when I was that age, I was not... I didn't think anything was going to happen to me either. Yeah. I didn't either when I was 16 and I was sexually assaulted. And you should not have to find out about the world that way. No. And when the ether man approached me. I know. It, you just. And you were 18. I was 18. It, you just don't know. It was at my place of business. Yeah. I never thought anybody would. So just please take precautions. Have a great time <laughs> in that in that time of your life and enjoy. But Practice just. the buddy system. But just, Sorry. Yes. But just be safe. Yes. We just want to prevent whatever we can prevent by telling you to stay situationally aware. Yes. And, you know, be aware that these things happen. They do happen. They Unfortunately. They do happen. So, you know, take precautions. Moving on to February 20th, four days after Carla's disappearance. Two of the officers assigned to look for her were driving along a remote two-lane road near Benbrook Lake which was about five miles southwest of the bowling alley where she was abducted. They spotted a culvert. I want to kind of explain what a culvert is real quick because I had actually talked about one of these. Well, if you guys remember, I don't know if you can remember that far back, but I think it was season two with um, the Karen Silkwood case. She had ran into a culvert 
And I kind of explained it then. But for those of you who, you know, haven't listened to that episode or whatever, it is one of those, how do I, how, how do I even explain this? So it runs underneath the road, number one. Um, it's not like the big circular tunnels or pipes that you see that runs underneath the road. The drainage system. Yeah, it, it's actually one of the ones that is fairly large. It's all concrete. It looks like a giant box that you can, like, it, it is person-sized. You can just walk without crouching or anything down under that. And it goes from one side of the road to the other. Please do not go get in them. If, yeah, if don't the, do that. If it's storming and there's a lot of rain, please do not do that. Um, there has been several fatalities from people getting in drainage ditches mm-hmm. and and these type of things when it storms mm-hmm. and they flood very fast so yeah. please just don't do that these men you saw this tunnel whatever reason like it was just pure coincidence that they were like you know what let's stop and take a look in there that's just good thinking. And they did. They pulled over and they looked inside. And of course, they see a young woman lying on her back in about the center of the culvert. Her face and neck covered with scratches and deep bruises and um, was almost immediately identified as Carla. So she still had her blue dress on from that night. And it was covered in blood. It was ripped in several places. Her bra was pushed up above her breasts. And her underwear and pantyhose were wadded up together at the entrance of the culvert. No longer on her body. She had obviously been strangled to death. Because there were no ligature marks on around her neck, investigators believed that the killer had choked her using his hands manual strangulation we could determine that she probably did in fact die the night that she was abducted which is really sad because there was some speculation i think on whether she had been held for a couple days right there was rumors about that even even back then during the investigation but i think they rolled that out and said that yeah she would that like more than likely this person took her immediately to wherever maybe even this precise location assaulted and her. sexually assaulted her there and just left her there and it was pretty quickly after the abduction carla's parents were asked to come to the hospital to identify her how awful jim went with them remember he's 12 years old at the time he actually says quote someone took mom and dad down the hall to look at her and my mom started screaming I had never heard anyone make a sound like that. It was like an animal sound. That will stay with me for as long as I live, end quote. So and sad. I think we've talked about this before. I don't remember I don't remember exactly which episode we talked about it, but I think a lot of different episodes. Well, yeah. Um, well, because it's I know that we talked about this non-recording off this off the off the record mm-hmm. with Gary. Yes. Um, Gary Perkinson because you know, we were talking about how my husband and I, you know, he's a paramedic. And we were talking about how we were sitting on the couch and he had ran a really, really, really bad call. And um, he ended up being there when one of the family members learned that, you know, someone passed away. And, you know, that wasn't the first time that that happened. But I think that, you know, we had talked about that everyone has this sound 
that's like it's almost like a fingerprint that they make when they find out information like this and for the people around them they never forget that person's specific sound you know and he was telling me you know there's there some of those sounds even Gary was saying you know those sounds that I will hear forever it's real anguish yes it's real anguish and it's it's really tough and I think that's kind of a side of of law enforcement and you know even the victim's family and stuff like that that you don't realize you know that's a part of them their memory now And, and he's 12 years old you know at the time that he hears his mother make one of these sounds so it's absolutely traumatic from start to end they, the news of Carla's murder covered almost the entire front page of the Star-Telegram. Her funeral, which was held at the Western Hills Church of Christ, was attended by more than 1,250 mourners, far more than the small sanctuary could actually hold. They walked past Carla's open casket, her friends, you know, obviously overcome with grief. They were also terrified because you have to remember... Nobody knows who did this to this point. And you're you're having this funeral where this happened to basically a child and nobody knows who did this. Who could there be somebody that who's this is going to happen to next? It's very terrifying. Well, yeah, you've, I mean you live scared and you know and you're a teenager and are driving to school every day or driving home, you have activities. Mm-hmm. You know, just even to go hang out with your friends is is scary. The kids they're actually just stopped cruising altogether. They just stopped. They just didn't go out hardly That's anymore. So sad. I know. And you know some were some were at the point where they would no longer even leave their houses at night. They like basically implied their own curfew. Like, no, we don't go. We don't go out at night. Well, and this stays with you forever. I mean, this isn't something. Yes, as time passes, you know, you they go on with their life and all that. But at some, that stays in their mind always. Yeah. And I mean, I think it would always make you on almost a sense of heightened awareness all the time. Well, and you know, for the kids at least, you know, and I say kids, but you know, anyone who. Anyone who came in contact with her at school or anything like that, you have to remember that that point in your life is such a high development point. Oh, yes. You have so many core memories, core values, and things that come about around that age. And so you might remember things, you know, from the time that you were 15, 16, 17, 18, and, you know, totally forget your 20s. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, and it's, it's a lot of it has to do with your long-term memory development yeah. and your short-term memory development and your brain, how your brain is, you know, it's growing and mm-hmm. it's just, it, it's a very imp- crucial, vital time. Yeah. Your memories. And, yes. And your trauma. I can remember when I was 15, there were two boys on the baseball team at my my high school and they died in a really bad car accident and I didn't know them very well they were older they were like 17 and 18 and I didn't know them very well but we all attended their funeral we all did we had people that grew up around them and I can still remember seeing like I can remember my memory is the worst memory but I can still remember seeing them in their caskets and thinking this guy was 17 years old you know, that's a, only a couple years older than me, and 
he's gone. I know. It sticks with you. Yeah. I, had, I had one that I had in my classes in junior high, and she was killed out um, by the lake mm. um, with a car. And, she, you know, I still remember to this day having like, her in my class beforehand and what effect. she was wearing. Yeah. yeah. It's just a ripple effect. It can affect so many. And especially when you're, you know, at that age. Kathy O'Neill, the editor of the high school yearbook that year, babysat in the neighborhood. Um, and she had to call her parents the moment she arrived to let them know she was safe. Like, this was just, like, new implementation. Like, everyone has to check in all the time, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you're going. And a whole bunch of other people were signing up for self-defense classes. They were, um, they actually had arranged self-defense classes by the Western Hills High PTA and were taught by two men who held black belts in jujitsu. Wow. This is this is how serious they were taking this. They were terrified. This was a terrified small town. Took away their innocence. They yes. really did. Fort Worth officials actually went ahead and formed a task force of detectives. It was put together from, you know, some of the area police departments. But the group didn't have just a whole lot to investigate. You know, they had only one witness. No one else witnessed this abduction. They only had so much evidence, you know, at the crime scene. They didn't have any fingerprints. They, you know, they didn't have any of her. They had her body. Um, but, you know, DNA testing wasn't a thing back then. No. So, I mean, they collected all of that. But, you know, it's, I always say this, it's so strange that we knew to collect those things. We just didn't know what we were going to do with them. I know. Like, but, isn't that strange? But it's so I mean, remarkable thank goodness, that yeah. they did because, yeah. you know, it, later so, on. So, yeah, they have all of this collecting of the evidence, but they don't know what to do with it. And, and so, you know, it kind of went cold. The blood on her dress, they thought had come from, at the time, they thought had come from Rodney's head wounds. Because they were pretty... They were, yeah. Pretty severe. Pretty extensive. Um, and those photos are not hard to to get a hold of if you know you would like to see those like he had some pretty deep it, I think he was hit three times two or three times um with the butt of the pistol and then he had a large cut from the um the sights across of, of being pistol whipped yeah across the cheek I mean it was enough to make him pass out and there was blood everywhere so they I think they just assumed at the time it was from Rodney there were traces of bodily fu- fluid that were found of course, they collected it, but of course, at the time, they didn't know what to do with it. They just knew to collect it. Two, at that, I'd read something somewhere at that point, not on this case, but just in general, that they knew at some point there might be use for it. So that, that's why they started collecting all this, because they thought at some point there could be use for this. Right. So let's collect this. I love that we had the, you know, forethought. Like, oh, I don't yes. know, maybe someday, you know, we'll yes. be able to do something with this. And I, I do want to reiterate the fact that, you know, this is the 70s. And again, no surveillance cameras. Um, you know, there wasn't like license plate readers. There no. wasn't, you know, the technology wasn't extensive. And... There was actually even one task force detective who said that, like, at that time, they didn't even have computers in the police department. Oh, I don't think they did. I think everything was still handwritten. This group, this task force, did set up a 24-hour telephone tip line. 
The detectives were told by various callers that Carla had been murdered by a pair of marijuana dealers at one point. Uh, They had also been told at one point that she had been murdered by a carnival worker um, from the Fort Worth stock show in Rodeo. I don't know, like, this is just tips that were coming in. Um, There was also a tip that said she was murdered by a quiet young man who often bowled alone at the bowling alley. Granted, we we know this from the you know the cases that we've worked that are cold that you know all kinds of tips oh yes come in but you know you still have to look into those and and they did they looked into every single tip that came in they even heard stories about a boy who had supposedly gotten into an argument with Rodney at Mr. Quick Hamburgers the night before the dance just random they got a call from a man also who wouldn't give his name but he claimed he knew the quote murderer who said who he said hadn't meant to kill Carla and had quote only wanted to F her. Wow. So there was some pretty deranged stuff coming in. That's awful. Yeah I know. (laughs) The detectives even hired a hypnotist at one point to draw more detail out of Rodney to see if they could get anything from him and he again he had that head injury you know during the incident but the most significant memory he managed to recall was that Carla's kidnapper had been wearing a brown or tan cowboy hat that's where that came from when the hypnotist snapped his fingers and Rodney woke up of course he burst into tears Quote, a scared kid all torn up inside, tormented that he didn't do enough to save his girlfriend, end quote. Oh, that's so sad. I know. During one meeting, the task force detectives did discuss another unsolved murder that had taken place on February 7th, 1973, which would have been almost exactly a year before Carla's murder. And that night, a young woman named Becky Martin didn't return home after attending a night class at Tarrant County Junior College's South Campus. Her body was found almost seven weeks later. It was so decomposed that there was no way to determine the cause of death. The medical examiner said Martin could have been stabbed or strangled or even shot through the stomach. They just didn't know. But because she was younger and, you know, she she kind of resembled Carla a bit and it was the same area they thought we'll look into it maybe it's connected but what most intrigued the detectives about Martin's murder was where her body had been found she was also found in a culvert wow that's interesting just outside the city limits so you have two girls who are very similar and they're also both you know found in culverts like That would have to be a huge coincidence. Oh, yes. So then they start forming this theory of a serial killer. Like, maybe we have a serial killer. By March, a month after Carla's killings, all the task force had to go on was one small lead. The detectives learned that the magazine clip found in the bowling alley parking lot belonged to a newer model 22 Ruger handgun. 
they asked the federal government's um, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to provide them the names of anyone living in Fort Worth who had purchased that specific model. And the ATF came up with a list of a couple dozen people, and the task force set out to interview each one of these people. And, and this is like, they have several different things going on with this case at once. They have, you know, this task force and everybody has, you know, different jobs on it. They have people over here looking into the serial killer, killer theory. They have, you know, the ATF looking through, you know, records and stuff for them. And they did come up with a list of people who had purchased that type of firearm, you know, within a certain amount of time before Carla Walker's death. One man on it was a 31-year-old truck driver named Glenn McCurley. In early March of 1974, two detectives drove to McCurley's home to interview him about his Ruger 22 pistol. When the officers asked about the gun, he said that it had been stolen around six weeks earlier from his pickup truck while he was out fishing. And then he agreed to come downtown to take a polygraph test, which somehow he passed. Which to me is scary. (laughs) I know. I know. The task force promptly eliminated him, like basically right then and there as a potential suspect. Mentor, one of the detectives said, quote, as much as it pains me to say this, we didn't think about McCurley again. And that's the thing. That's why polygraphs are not admissible in court. No, polygraphs are junk science. <laughs> and yes, and you know, you look at people like Ted Bundy. It's like and, bite mark evidence. Well, I knew you yes, were going there. <laughs> yeah, Ted Bundy, who could pass one of those. I know. I mean, you, if you don't, if oh, your yeah. blood pressure is not raised and you have no mm-hmm. empathy towards anyone exactly. else, you're exactly. going to stay calm. Yeah, exactly. I don't think people realize that, well, at least, you know, the lay person. Our listeners probably know. <laughs> they do. They're smart. <laughs> They're really smart. Our listeners are so smart. I know. But most people probably don't realize that those tests literally use your heart rate. They do. That's what they use. And so, you know, the theory is, is that if someone asks you a question that you get real nervous about, your heart rate's going to shoot up. And they're going to be able to see that your heart rate is shooting up. And that, quote, indicates some sort of deception. Now, you're never going to know. You you don't know if they're lying or if they're not lying, what it is. But it is an indicator for deception. So, like you just said, if someone literally cannot have empathy, they just don't have the connection for empathy, then they're obviously not going to be nervous when no. when someone questions them about because they don't like care this. no and if they're not nervous then nothing is going to trigger their heart rate therefore you're going to pass a lie detector test with flying colors you're just going to be flippant yeah. like yeah. whatever you're and this is a, a big reason why in a lot of states you know lie detector tests are not admissible in court and so, but, you know, we still always see people go, oh, well, we t- we brought him down and did a lie detector test, even though that's not admissible. Like, well, then why are we spending funds on this? Like, why are we wasting resources on it? Because it's not really going to tell us anything one way or the other. <laughs> and there are some times, though, where if, 
if someone takes a lie detector test and they are off the charts, like I think in the Chris Watts case, but that is the exception. It is not the, the rule. But you know, there's going to be people that are going to question that yeah. and say, well, what about his? Cause his was televised. You know, you could see that. Well, out of, let's say the millions of lie detector tests that have been given, if you only have a sliver that, you know, like, you know, that are off the charts or whatever, mm-hmm. like those are obviously the exception. You know. And you see that, I think I've seen that a lot of times more, and that's not always the case, but with children, yeah, you see anytime you, children involved, you see a little bit more of a reaction mm, yeah. than you would an adult. Mm-hmm. And that's not always true, but I've seen a trend in that. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, you, you, you wonder, but if they are a sociopath or a psychopath, mm-hmm. you will not see that. I don't think you'd see that for children either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... By late spring of 1974, investigators had very little to show for their work. The task force didn't officially disband, but they, but many of the detectives were ordered by their su- supervisors to return to, you know, their other cases. And life went on. See, that's so sad to me because there's so many talking to Gary, you know, Parkinson, there's mm-hmm. so many cases that they have to they move have on the to. potential, yeah. And, and you know, they, they have to. And it's it's sad because you, you want them to stay on that case mm-hmm. forever, but there's so many. I think it's a manpower issue. It is. Of course, if we had no limits in manpower, you know, each case could have its own, you know, it work. Could. But, okay, so then from there, we cut to three years later. Nothing happens, basically, in that three years. In February 19th, 1977, almost precisely three years after Carlos' body was found, someone comes across the body of 25-year-old June Ward, who was a vocational nurse, and she was lying next to a curb in South Fort Worth. Ward was naked, except for a bra strap wrapped around her neck. She had been strangled and beaten over the head with what one reporter described as, quote, a sharp, heavy object, end quote. Detectives who had worked on the Carla Walker task force couldn't help but notice, you know, some similarities between these crimes. And then on July 9th, 1980, so another, let's see, seven Another two years, years, two and a half two, years, two and a half years. The body of a 19-year-old woman named Denise Huff, described in the newspapers as quote un, an unemployed drifter end quote, was found a few feet from a creek bridge in southeast Fort Worth. She too had been strangled. So now we are really kind of building this serial killer theory because. You can have this serial killer theory in the beginning when you have two. You can go, well, you know, maybe, but until you have more, and this sounds so horrible. This is like so morbid, but until you have more bodies, three, you know, you, know, you can't make a connection. Um, so we are now at 1980. We have several other women that we can see if there's a link to. Two and a half years later, in February 1983, the body of Christy Tower 
a waitress at the famous Billy Bob's Texas nightclub in the stockyards was discovered in a field north of the city. Her hands had been bound with electrical wire and another wire was twisted around her neck. Obviously, she had been strangled. Like the other killings, the Tower case remained a mystery, though a few days after her murder, detectives received a curious bit of news. They learned that Tower's purse had been found in a dumpster behind Cheers, which was a bar, and that bar was actually on Campus Bowie Boulevard, which is one of the places where the kids used to drag, cruise, whatever, drag main, whatever. Um, Cheers was only a half a mile from the bowling alley parking lot as well. Very close. Mm -hmm. Very close. And so, you know, of course, city residents were getting more worried about the prospect of a serial killer. Such concerns grew when Catherine Davis, a 23-year-old aspiring model, went missing on September 9th, 1984. I mean, this is this is a getting to be a pretty s- long term spanned out. Yes, well, and that's that's how most serial killers do it. Yes, I mean, you know, you do have some that escalate rather quickly, you know, like Bundy or whatever. But for the most part, you have a killing, and then you have a cooling off period of one, two, three years. You do, and so this is very typical. Well, or you can, and, and one person that I think that's pretty rare even is the btk killer where he it's almost like he escalated and then he stopped for years and years and years and Mm -hmm. then he started again well we also do know that serial killers absolutely have the potential to just stop they do and usually it's because they're in control of something in their life something else well like btk you know he he had that whatever that job he was promoted to manager yeah and he was able to control his life a little better but once he retired yeah all all off the table but you don't see that a lot um with no but you like even in the green river killer I mean, you you see someone who starts taking control of their life, like mm-hmm. in their real actual life, and kind of cools off on yes. you know the killings, and then there's always that trigger, you know, that kind of sets them back into motion. And it could the, it could be years and years and years. It could be decades later. It could. I mean, and and there's a lot of reasons why serial killers stop killing. Um, you know, a lot of it could be like we just said, control, but some of it sometimes is physical impaired, That's true. Um, being physically impaired for one reason or another. Um, they get older. They get older. They, and, they, and I have read that that seems to wane a little bit as they get older. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I don't know if that has to do more with, you know, I think sometimes does it have to do with some of our long-term memory, you know, and, and our short-term memory? I, I don't know. I, I don't know kind of how that feeds yeah. um, when they get older. Right. And so, but it's interesting. And in this particular case, you know, you have Carla Walker and that's a pretty good span of time. Yeah. You well, know, that's so. from 74 to 84. We so have. That's a 10 year span. Let me count them. June Ward, Denise Huff, Christy Tower, and then Catherine Davis. And that was all. And if you want to include Carla Walker, mm-hmm. that was all in that 10-year span. 
So that that's I feel like that's pretty typical. Yeah. For a serial killer. So Davis went missing on September 9th, 1984. She was found in a field in far south Fort Worth. But Carla Walker was the only one out of these that, you know, there was that second person there. There was. That he tried to, that he abducted with a second person being there. That's true. You know, there's a lot of similarities and there are some that, you know, aren't similar. And then a theory... Someone could ask, general theory, well, did he even know that the boyfriend was in the car? Yeah. I mean, the only reason that I think that he did is because I I know that it was dark. But, you know, once you approach that car, you're going to hear some heavy panting coming from inside. You would think he could... But, you know, well, but also in that same sense, how did he even know Carla was in the car? He had had been watching. He had to have seen, uh, watched her at least walk from, you know, the bathroom to the car. And that's what I think, I think was her going to the bathroom yeah. and coming back yeah. is what. And he had to have seen the boyfriend in there. That's right. just, that's just my, and, you know, theory. But I think that's what triggers is him, what is him seeing her. Yeah. So that he must have been somewhere in the parking lot. Yeah, he had to have been. Or maybe even in inside the bowling alley. Yes. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, Cindy Heller, a 23-year-old Texas Christian University graduate and former beauty pageant contestant, was last seen near Holland Mall. She was later found strangled in a creek bed on the TCU campus. And I think that one lines up. In the, in the creek bed, yes. In a creek bed, yeah. This just keeps piling up. Angela Ewart, a 21-year-old part-time model and programmer for an FM rock station, left her fiancé's home in southwest Fort Worth. The following day, her car was found abandoned by a highway in a southern part of the city. Her decomposed remains were eventually discovered in a field north of Fort Worth. Seems like it's escalating. It does seem like it's escalating extremely because you have 10 years where you have you know every couple of years and then all of a sudden it's like every couple of months so then on the evening of December 22nd a 21 year old Regina Grover was seen with her boyfriend walking out of the keg which was a restaurant on Camp Bowie She was found the next day strangled and drowned in a creek under a bridge in North Fort Worth. And this one, I think, is the one that is the most similar to Carla Walker. Um, Her boyfriend, who was found in his bed at his apartment, had been bludgeoned to death in his own bed. So it's almost like someone saw them coming out of there, followed them back to his apartment, just went in brazen, kind of like Carla's, went in brazen, killed him, make sure he was taken out, abducted her. Well, and he was obviously watching, and he probably didn't have a chance to get them in the car. Well, and I, you know, it doesn't stop him from completing his sort of dump, where he dumps the woman's Mm -hmm. body. You know, where he dumps the woman's body. He, even, you know, if this were the same person with Rodney, he just killed, like, he would have killed him right there. Oh, yes, he would. And left him there. And and that's what happened to this man. He was killed right there and left there. And then the woman is abducted. It's a different sort of confidence, I yeah. think. But there is definite 
similarities in a lot of these. So I understand why they were, you know, looking at it and, and seeing if they could piece it together as a serial. Yes. An editorialist in the Star Telegram actually fanned more fear by declaring that the recent spat of murders was almost likely being carried out by, quote, one or more extremely sick persons consumed by a passion for killing, particularly for killing attractive young women, end quote. So that obviously caused a panic. Well, that's scary. That's a lot of, I mean, even one, but that's a lot of young women. And the local media actually reported a skyrocketing sale of guns and mace because people were just terrified. Women were terrified. And then when the police department offered a free seminar on self-defense, again, more than 3,000 attended, most of them women. Wow. Yeah. The police department ended up forming another task force. The investigation, though, was fruitless. The only welcome news was a lull in the murders. The killer, if it was just one killer, uh, seemed to have you know, gone into remission or retreated or whatever you want to call it. That was 84. We are going to jump to February 24th, 1986. A passerby came across a woman's unclothed body, partially wrapped in a blanket, lying on a hillside near a park in central Fort Worth. She had been strangled. But the police couldn't identify her through usual means, like fingerprinting or dental records. I'm not exactly sure why. I don't know if that means that she was decomposed or what had happened to her. Um, They also hadn't received any reports about a missing woman, so there wasn't any extra information about that. Meanwhile, you know, while all of that investigation is going on, Um, Western Hills High students raised money to pay for the memorial for Carla. They had a tile plaque of a cougar, the school's mascot, which administrators installed on the floor of the front hallway. There were black ropes hanging from metal stanchions surrounding the plaque so that no one could walk on it. They wanted to, you know, preserve her memory. And in the spring of 1975, All of those classmates graduated when she should have been graduating. By fall 1976, when Carla's little brother Jim arrived at Western Hills High for his freshman year, Carla's name wasn't mentioned in the hallways like it once was. Students chatted happily to one another. They walked past her memorial. You know, this was like right in between. Um, Obviously, there was a long while in which investigators did not let the public know that, you know, they were looking at a serial, so, you know, no one really knew about that. The younger generation that was starting to move up didn't probably know as much about it because nope. they were younger siblings at the time, and they probably just, mm-hmm. you know, just moved up, and then they kind saw it on. The, in, the, in the high school, but, you know, seeing something and being attached to it, you know, and actually re- realizing what it is about yeah. is different. Jim said that he tried to avoid the plaque. Um because, you know, it kind of upset him. Oh, sure. A per- he was a personable kid with a th- with thick brown hair that fell over, se- over his ears. And he, too, just kind of wanted to move on with his life. Still, there were times when he would come across Carla's memorial and he would feel overwhelmed. He said, quote, Our family had been destroyed by Carla's murder. Every morning, my mom would slip back to her bathroom 
stand in her shower without the water running and weep. I never saw my dad cry. He was a military man, you know, but for the first few years after Carla's murder, I didn't see him smile either, end quote. That's sad. Yeah, but I think it's really important to see how, you know, things affect the family members. Oh, it is. Oh, yes. So during those years, strangers would occasionally call the Walker's house, many of them anonymously, claiming that they had information about the killer. And um, Layton, which was Carla's dad, talked to all of them. Quote, he took notes and kept them in a metal, metal box the size of a cigar box. He wrote down names and addresses of potential suspects, and he drew circles on maps where he had been told the killer lived. He was not going to rest, he told me, until he knew Carla's killer was behind bars. End quote. That was from Jim. It has really affected this family. Yeah. When Jim turned 16, he got his driver's license, and he began spending his free time helping his dad hunt for the killer. Sometimes on the anniversary of Carla's death, he would prowl the parking lot of the bowling alley looking for anyone suspicious. He took boxing lessons at the Panther Boys Club. He joined the high school's wrestling and football teams. He went on long runs through the neighborhood. Like, he wanted to make sure that he was ready if he ran into this guy. Which is just like, that's just heartbreaking. It is. Like, as a child, you should not have to be prepping yourself to face a murderer. Yes. Oh, no. And and that just shows you right there what families go through during these, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's just, it's it's a lifetime of, yes. of things. Yeah. An- another year passed, and then another year passed, and, you know, it really did appear as if the killer had just vanished like no one knew who he was and um you know short of someone showing up at the police department to confess the detectives were pretty much unable to imagine solving any of the these killings like most of these cases went cold including carla's quite a few to go it's quite a few yeah to go cold like that of course carla walker's little brother jim had not given up after graduating from western hills high He attended Sam Houston State University, where he read books on serial killers and took courses in abnormal psychology so that he could better understand what he described as, quote, the criminal mind. It it had become an obsession for him, and that that is not where his life should have led him. After he graduated from college, he moved back to Fort Worth and applied to become a police officer with the city's police department. He says, quote, my plan was to get promoted to detective, get my hands on Carla's files and find her killer, end quote. During a training session at the academy's firing range, however, Jim noticed something wrong with his eyesight. A doctor later diagnosed him with a congenital eye condition and he was forced to drop out of the academy. Wow. He went to work in security at a local office of defense contractor... General Dynamics. On his own, he continued hunting for Carla's killer. His father then passed away in 1987 of a heart attack. And Jim dug through the notes in his metal box looking for any leads that he could pursue. His mother then passed away in 2015. 
And Jim purchased his parents' home and moved into it with his wife. Quote, I wanted to be there in case somebody ever got a conscience at three in the morning and showed up to confess. End quote. Oh, wow. That's like, it's so heartbreaking. That like, just... he literally could not move on from it. He just couldn't. And, like, I totally understand. Like, this is someone that you loved. And it's really hard you know, you have to make some sort of mental, mental, um, decision at some point to say, am I going to forget her and move on with my life? Or am I stuck here fighting for her forever? It would be hard on someone to make that decision because that grief would be so, so consuming. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't imagine. I, yeah. Jim also regularly called the Fort Worth Police Department's cold case unit to ask about developments in the in Carla's murder investigation. And of course, he always got the same answer. Nothing new, you know. Um, when Jim called the unit in 2018, he was 56 years old. Now, I want you to remember all of that investigating, everything that, you know, we had just talked about, all that's cold now. He was 12. He called the unit in 2018. He was 56 years old and he was working at as a vocational rehab counselor for the state of Texas. His eyesight had steadily deteriorated to the point that he needed a guide dog to help him get around. Mm. I know. Like, my heart literally, like, hurts, quenches for, for this man. You just think about it. You just think about him and you just, I just want to give him a hug through the microphone. I know. <laughs> like, I, I just want to hug this person poor man and tell him like i'm so sorry you had to go through this well if you if he ever does listen to this please know that we we're right there with you in our hearts and we're so so sorry absolutely yeah jim had left a voicemail for a detective named leah wagner she returned the call and Wagner had joined the department in 2000, first working in, in patrol, and what and had become detective in 2013. She eventually was promoted to the homicide division and focused on active cases. But in 2018, she moved to the cold case unit. So she started poring over barely legible incident reports from years and years and years ago, searching for physical evidence that, you know, almost certainly no longer existed looking for witnesses who had moved away Um, maybe they forgot what they saw or died she was trying to collect all of this information Wagner's office which was a small windowless cubicle adjoined a storage room filled with nearly a thousand files documenting unsolved murders dating back to 1959. That's a long time. Yeah. And after speaking to Jim, Wagner went looking for Carla's files. They were on a bottom shelf stuffed into two large brown boxes. She started reading and she didn't get far when her supervisor sent her to take over the active case of a detective who had fallen seriously ill. So she actually didn't, she wasn't able to get back to that case until January of 2019. And it was about a year after she had first talked to Jim. Then she returned to her cold case job. By then, more files had stacked up. She had asked her supervisors for some help. And they had the perfect solution for her. They sent her a reserve officer named Jeff B. 
Bennett. Now, for those of you who don't know, reserve officers perform various duties for the police departments. Typically, it's on a volunteer basis. And Bennett worked in the commercial construction business, had been helping the police department since 1997 as a reserve officer. He worked mostly nights in the patrol division responding to 911 calls. He said, quote, I liked my day job, but law enforcement was my passion. I felt like it was my chance to make a contribution, end quote. Bennett had let his superiors know he was interested in doing detective work. And his timing couldn't have been better because he was then sent to the cold case unit with Wagner, who showed him the Carla Walker boxes. Bennett took them home, immediately started reading through them. From what I've seen about him, you could not find a more passionate person to be on this case. And, of course, you know, in there, there were original police reports, autopsy reports, summations of interviews. Um, You know, all of that stuff was in there. He went through all of it. He was, he almost became, from what some people would describe as obsessive with this case. And sometimes through the night, eventually... He came up with an exhaustive list of roughly about 80 people of interest that he thought would be worth re-interviewing. That's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. And, you know, as as two people who, who do interviews <laughs> a lot, we know that just one interview can be exhaustive. Can you imagine 80? I could not imagine doing 80. And, and I imagine it was like 80 back to back to back to back to back to back. Not just, like, we schedule them out over months, but, like, you know. That would be just a full-time, mm-hmm. just right there. I know. Just doing that. And, and he's voluntary. Wow. So, I know. Like, man, kudos. I know. To him. So, Wagner and Bennett asked Jim and his older sister, Cindy, to come downtown so that they could, you know, meet them and get a feel for them, introduce themselves. Jim brought along his guide dog, a black lab named Cassie. And the detectives asked Jim and Cindy if they had any hunches about who the killer might be. I, I guess they just wanted to get a feel for what they thought. Jim, of course, replied, we have no idea. Cindy told the investigators that she, you know, had a couple grandchildren now but that she was still you know really scared of letting them out of her sight like this it all these years later it's still you know always in the back of her mind like what if they get taken from me because you just don't know if that person's out there watching even though it's been that many years later it doesn't know it 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 doesn't mean your mindset's just going to switch from it's okay now you know it's just it doesn't work that way and if you go with the serial killer theory all of these happened within close proximity to each other in this in this you know one particular area you could assume that the killer lived in that area or at least worked in that area i I think the the killer would know especially you know being at the bowling alley at night you would have to know that area and to know there was no lights in certain places to know what fields to and not be seen right you would have to know right the area yeah i i i really believe that so okay so the detectives start tracking down these people on this list that he created the first one that they re-interviewed 
was, of course, Rodney McCoy, who was Carla's boyfriend at the time, because that's just, that's just where you have to start. Um, he had actually moved to Alaska as soon as he graduated from high school. Like, oh, I did not know that. Yes, like as far away from it as he could possibly get. He worked on an oil rig, and um, he literally told his family that he needed to get as far away from Fort Worth as possible. That's probably the only way he could cope. Yeah. He eventually returned to Texas, and at the time that they, you know, started tracking down these people, he was living near Austin. Um, and this is where I want to talk a little bit about... What happened to Rodney that night? Um, because I know we we briefly went over it, but I do want to re- reiterate a couple important parts. The fact that when he said that he was pistol whipped, there's evidence of that pistol whipping happening. When he was pistol whipped, he said, "I saw something fall to the ground." Later, we can determine that that was actually, in fact, the clip because it was still there on the ground along with the purse, which would have fallen out immediately when the, yes. when the door opened. So we know he didn't see the purse fall. We, we know he saw something else fall. They were probably startled when the door opened and yes. didn't even notice the purse. Yes. And we are assuming that at this point that the gun was a type of gun that had the um, release button for the clip on the butt because we also know that he pointed the gun at Rodney and pulled the trigger three times. He was going to kill Rodney right then and there. But because he had pistol whipped him, he lost his clip and the clip fell out and it was just by some miracle that Rodney didn't get shot. And then, of course, he passed out. The gun itself also is consistent with the lacerations on his face because this, we know, you know, that we're looking for a certain type of gun from the clip. They knew what type of gun they were looking for. And this certain type of gun would have had a, at the end of the barrel, it would have had a sight that was very sharp. It was sharp. Yes. And, um... We know that he hit him with the front side of that gun several times. He said that. And he also had, you know, those lacerations that definitely could be made from that sight on the end of the gun. It was round. They were pretty round. So everything that Rodney said added up to this, you know, to this point. Um, everything that he said, there wasn't anything iffy about it. The only part that, you know, looking through this case, you can ever say is, well, why didn't he go straight to the police? Well, he had a head injury. (laughs) Yes, and, you know, I had said before, he was probably miscombobulated. It was probably difficult for him to drive. And he He didn't know how long he'd been out either. I think he wanted to get straight to a person, an adult who he trusted. He, yes, and you... That's, you know, that's a lot of times when you're a child, that's the first thing they tell you, go to an adult you trust, go to a trusted adult. And that's what he did. And so when you are miscombobulated, Mm -hmm. you don't really know, like, kind of what's going on. You're just going to go to the first thing you know that's been nailed into your mind. Yes. Yes, and the fact that he had no idea when he, you know, he went unconscious, he had no idea when he woke up how long he had been unconscious. 
He did not know that. To him, it felt like, you know, he laid his head down and picked it right back up. So in his mind at that time, I don't think he felt like any time had passed. Yes. Like he still had time to go get her dad, you know, and, and that was an adult that he trusted and he has a head injury. Well, and I do want to add, and I think this is so important. Again, we're talking about before technology. So there were no cell phones. Right. So you would have had to go somewhere anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, could he have gone in the bowling alley? How long was he out? The bowling alley was probably closed. Yeah, was it open? Um, I I did see somewhere that it said that um, the police station and the hospital were way further away than Carla's home, which was only a mile away. So I think he just, in his mind, you know, took all of that into account that he could, which is pretty smart, and made a decision. Hit that, yeah, yeah. And and I personally, you know, even before this next part we're about to talk about, I personally always believed him. You know that that he what he was saying happened is what happened. He was re-interviewed. He you know said told them all of that. Um, of course, they went back and tried to locate new witnesses to see if there was anybody who could have seen, you know, that never came forward. They posted a message on the police department's Facebook page because now technology is a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, now social media is a thing. And they did get a couple dozen responses, including one from a woman who claimed that her ex-husband had grown up in the same neighborhood as Carla and had kept a stash of newspaper articles about her murder. Which is, is kind of odd. I mean, it, it is kind of odd. Um, I can understand being a true crime junkie and, you know, keeping clippings of several different ones. But to only keep the ones from Carla's when, when so- we know that there were many other w- women, you know, murdered in the it area. It seems a little, to have a little a bit little strange. more interest than... If you don't know the family, that's a little bit more interest than a normal. Yes. And so the ex-wife was like, he did it. Because, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go to that extent and say that because you keep clippings. No. You, you know, you are a murderer. But, but you but, can imagine someone that lives with you or your spouse seeing yes, that and yeah. then, you know, flying to you know, conclusions. Yes. So. And I do want to say that, you know, this man was looked into and he had an alibi that when Carla was murdered, he was not even in town. So, you know, just because you have a bunch of news clipping, I do think that it's odd that it was just that one case. But that doesn't make you a murderer. No, no, (laughs) not at all. It just, you know, there's... But you could, I could see where the spouse might be a little concerned. (laughs) So, because this is now 2019, the detectives now know that there could be a possibility... That they could get physical evidence from, you know, what was collected at the scene. And, of course, the best physical evidence that they could hope for is DNA. So the technology of DNA identification had progressed beyond anyone's expectations. There were now laboratories that specialized in genealogical mapping in which technicians use freely accessible databases to link DNA from an unknown person to the DNA of that person's relatives. 
Fortunately for Wagner and Bennett, Carla's dress and other clothing that she'd worn the night of her murder had been carefully packed away in paper bags in the police department's evidence lab, which meant that there was a really good chance that, you know, they could still get a usable sample of DNA off of them. Now, it was previously thought that that DNA was Rodney's, but now we have the technology to see if it's Rodney's. So after all of those years... You know, there's now a way of knowing. Um, and and I want to say that by this time, you know, we had surpassed because, um, you know, in the past when DNA first came about, it was like, you have to have a really good sample. Oh, it had to be. Like a really good sample. Now, not so much. No. There, there are labs out there who are specializing in degraded, you know, DNA. And we actually got the chance to speak with one of those labs, um, which is a lab there in Texas, who actually worked on this case. And I think now is a good time to introduce them. We have with us David Middleman and Kristen Middleman. You're actually the first ones to get both of us. It's a it's a rare thing, but well, you know what? I'll take that as a win. <laughs> well, and the listeners will really appreciate. Yeah, it they'll too. really like that. They'll learn a lot. So, uh, my name is uh, David Middleman, and I'm the CEO of Authram. And my name is Kristen Middleman, and I'm the Chief Development Officer at Authram. So, David and I met 22 years ago at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, I made blind mice. He actually cured the blind mice and made them see again. So. I figured I can break anything and he can fix it and I would marry him and keep doing uh, crazy experiments with him when it came to DNA. But um, no, in all seriousness, David's been working on DNA technology for decades since the first human genome project. He was part of the first human genome project, the thousand human genome project. He um, actually helped NIST build some of the standards that the FDA uses today to use this type of sequencing in medicine and make life or death decisions. And I did a lot of DNA work with him for for years and years and years. And then I actually went into intellectual property law and grants and contracts and ran a um, division uh, for the Commonwealth of of Virginia that managed $600 million worth of grants um, for the university. And that helped... um, that helped me realize that a lot of these new technologies are stuck. They're stuck because they need funding. Um, somewhere along the way, after um, David's medical lab sold right before this, um, he said, Kristen, I think we should go into forensics and build a forensic lab of the future. People are using medical technologies and consumer technologies to run forensic samples using these types of sequencing methods, but no one has purpose-built a lab that actually uses the most advanced genomic technologies and sequencing technologies, but in the context of forensics. And it's absolutely necessary in order to bring justice to all cases and not just the ones that would work in a medical assay or in a consumer assay. You can imagine that medical DNA or consumer DNA is largely single source. When you spit in a tube or when you give blood at the doctor's office, it's only your blood or your DNA. You can imagine that it's fresh, it's very long, it's not contaminated at all. It's the exact opposite DNA that you see in crime scenes. And so... 
we had to start from scratch and see how we would build these profiles from DNA that is super degraded, super contaminated, that is mostly not single source and has a whole bunch of other different properties to it that that people were not thinking about at the time and allow justice to be had in all cases, not just cases with tractable DNA. And that's what Othram's purpose and mission is. You know, this is kind of a newer technology, obviously. Um, And I think that, you know, most people don't understand it. I wanted to ask you what the difference is in testing that you guys do versus the kind of testing that like a lab from law enforcement would do? The biggest difference is that um, the the current kind of standard way of doing uh, forensic DNA testing is premised on a system called CODIS. It was developed by the FBI. Um, it was nationalized in um, 1994, and it uses, now it's 20 markers, but I think when they started it was eight markers. It uses 20 markers to basically index unknown DNA found at a crime scene. And if you've been convicted of a crime, um, your DNA can be added in and then it can be used to connect you to other crimes you may have committed, perhaps in other states, or it can be used to track ongoing crimes you might commit after conviction. The the challenges is, uh, uh, with this technology is that if you haven't been convicted or if you've been convicted but you just haven't been put into the database, it happens. Or if you're a victim and so you definitely haven't been convicted, you're a victim of a crime then the system doesn't work for, for those cases. In fact, um, the CODA system was not designed. It was never intended, nor was it designed to, to solve, you know, some of these newer problems people work on, like the problems of um, unidentified remains. The whole NamUs project is, is a project that is not, um, you know, not, not intended for use with CODIS. And, um, and so as such, um, we, we wanted to do something different. And so DNA testing at Authram is premised on two things. One is that we're looking for a lot more information than 20 markers. We're looking at hundreds of thousands of data points. But the other thing is that we wanted to make sure um, that we are inclusive of all kinds of cases, all kinds of evidence. And so it's important for us not to leave any case behind. And, and so we've developed tools, including our own laboratory. We actually have two laboratories. Most people don't realize this. We have a forensic laboratory, and then we have an R&D laboratory where we do no forensic work. But we just do continuous iteration on these methods. Um, and, and that's an important thing because no one else in the world is doing this. And, um, and so we, we, use, we use this uh, uh, laboratory, the R&D, and the, and, the, and the development of our tools to allow us to read information from evidence that's been otherwise considered intractable or unusable. And, and when we talk a little bit more about like the Carla Walker case, for example, there's two pieces there. One is that the evidence was unusable. It's not that they got 20 markers. It was just fundamentally unusable by other groups that tried to do more with it. And we also, when we were able to access that evidence that was unusable by others, we were able to get more information than just the conventional 20 markers. It's important to note that, like, you know, CODIS is a very important and powerful part of the process. So it's like, it's, it's where you're always going to go to start. Sure. But it's also important to know its limitations. If, if you weren't found, if you're in an older case, remember that they didn't nationalize this. The system was created in the late 80s, mm-hmm. these STR tests and markets are using. It was nationalized in 94. It didn't really rise to prominence until 2000. So if you're a pre-2000 crime, there is a fair chance just due to resources, not because people don't care, yeah. but just due to resources, that, that your case is not there. 
And even if you are there or some of the cases are there, not all the cases are there. There's backlogs of cases extending to the 70s and 60s. And, and none of those have been captured um, in any in any adequate way yet by CODIS. Well, and the way that I think of it is it's, it's totally complimentary. CODIS is there to confirm identity. If someone has committed a repeat crime and they're in the database, it confirms their identity, right? They have a hit. And it's really good at doing just that, confirming the identity. But it's not good at inferring identity. And that is what we do. When you have no idea who that person that left DNA at a crime scene is, whether they've left it one time or, you know, 15 times in 15 different crime scenes, then that's where FGG or Forensic Genetic Genealogy, which is what what our sort of procedure is called, comes into play because you're able to get these DNA profiles, like David said, that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of data points. And then you're able to upload those to genealogical databases consented for law enforcement use. And you can infer someone's identity. You can figure out where they belong on family trees. And then that is then again confirmed with our original CODIS test that was done. And CODIS testing confirms the result that comes out of FGG. CODIS test is what actually goes to court when one of these cases are on trial or in court. And so it's absolutely necessary to have both. But where we come in is when there's a DNA dead end and there are no other leads in a case, then we can help sort of figure out how to jumpstart that investigation. You know, you can upload your DNA to places like GEDmatch. You know, just the, the regular citizen, if they want to help, can upload to like GEDmatch and stuff like that. Um, but there's also, you have, uh, what is it called, DNA Solves, correct? That's right. We have um, our own database. There are three databases that you can use right now that are consented for law enforcement use. It's GenMatch, Family Tree DNA, and then our own DNA Solves. Our database was purpose-built just for this. We obviously don't have a consumer-facing side to our database at all. We did that so that we could build the smallest database necessary to actually bring the most impact to these types of cases. I'm sure you see when you go onto DNA solves and scroll through our solved cases, we were able to, we have been able to identify victims and perpetrators of various biogeographical backgrounds. And if you look at, I think we have the most Native American sort of identifications for victims. We have you can just scroll through and you can see that everyone's sort of represented. That's because we're trying to build a database that's purpose-built for this. I think it's super important to to note that when you purpose-built a database in order to figure out someone's ancestry or where they belong, sort of, which is a lot of what, what these consumer databases do, find your relatives and figure out where you, your family came from, you're targeting a different type of audience than, than wanting to target everyone so that you can help solve crimes or help identify victims of crimes. Right. Um, And I did upload my DNA to DNA Solves, but I wanted to ask you when I, so I did my testing through Ancestry. And of course, you know, there's a way that you can pull your profile and upload it to these other websites, including yours. But when I uploaded mine, it said that it wasn't a full profile that I was missing, I believe it was like mitochondrial, the the mitochondrial DNA part of it. How important is it that you have a full profile? It's not that you're missing. It's just various various companies will report various parts of the data. So so Ancestry will will report you know the autosomal markers, 
and and that may not include you know um, you know Y markers if you're a guy, and, and they may not include mitochondrial markers. Um, other services like 23andMe will will report additional markers, and so it doesn't mean you're missing anything. It just it just has to do with what that service offers, and um, our system will. Uh, Will 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 seek to identify whatever information it can about all these different types of DNA markers, and so um, if the information is there, then 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 we'll report that it's there, and if it's not, we report that it's not there. But I think by and large, just contributing your autosomal um, profile, which is what you're getting out of Ancestry, is is still a really great um, you know contribution to helping get someone identified. Yeah, we we actually have a pretty strict um, in terms of service that you can that you can see on our site. And so in addition to not sharing it, we, um, we, we restrict the use of that information exclusively to identifying folks from crime scenes, victims, suspects. And so there, there's, for example, no like medical research or other things that we do. So I, I, I don't know the terms that all the databases and at all the websites you have to, you have to read. It's, it's smart to read at every website or place where you're going to send your data, what the rules are, but I can tell you DNA solves and also at all like, our, our focus is, is exclusively in identifying people um, through uh, relationships and, and, and public records and family trees. And so we have, a, I would say, if not the most narrow, one of the most narrow uses for data that we, um, that we compile or that we accept from others. Struck, and all families are different and some are larger than others and, and some have more you know, complexity than others. But the way I would think about it is this. If the family tree is well documented, right? So the fact that there, there may be multiple marriages, and for each one there's children that descended, then working that kind of family tree is, is really no different than working any family tree. The, the 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 challenge and where where the complexity arises is when you have a family of any size, but there's undocumented components to it. So so maybe maybe um, two people had a child, but they weren't married, right? And there's so there's no birth uh, there's no uh, sorry marriage certificate or anything there's nothing tying them together and so it's in that kind of scenario that you then identify someone that is related to the family but the relationship that is revealed through DNA testing isn't backed up through you know paperwork or genealogical records and, and that's okay as well but that's that that creates an additional complexity and it takes time for us to work through that and you know there's a, there's a term that genealogists use um, NPE which uh, you know broadly stands for non-paternal events, and those could be scenarios, for example, where you know someone's father is not who they think it is, um, you know, or, or rather their biological father is not who they think it is, and so yeah, that can make it a little bit difficult. There's other things too. Uh, you may have someone that is a great match um, in terms of genetic relatedness to the person you're trying to identify, but they themselves are adopted. A lot of folks that tested their DNA early on, they were doing it because they wanted to know about their family. So if you match to someone that themselves has not sorted out their own family mystery and don't know who their biological parents are, that also creates complexity. So I think I think the, the challenge is when the genetic relationships don't line up with the documentation and the records. But um, but just just having a larger family on its own is OK um, and is and it's pretty easy to sort through, provided that the documentation supports what the structure of that family is. When you have, let's say you have someone who's uploaded their DNA um, to your website and you get a hit off of it, is there any point where you need to contact them for, for more samples or anything like that? Like, do you reach out to them to let them know, hey, we've got a match? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so sometimes, I mean, if, if someone is a genetic match in a database, 
we, we don't need to reach out to them for, for more DNA because we know they're a match. But for example, if, if we don't, like we just discussed, there may not be documentation on the family structure. And if we can't figure out where they fit on a tree, you could imagine we would, um, we, we generally don't reach out ourselves, right? We're, we're an agent of law enforcement working on their behalf. We work for law enforcement. We're not, we're not law enforcement. We're not investigators. So we may recommend to law enforcement, we may say, look, this person is clearly genetically related to this victim that we're trying to identify. But I think speaking to them would help the process along because we see ambiguity or, or, or incomplete records. It's hard to kind of figure out who their parents and their grandparents are. If you talk to them, maybe they'd be willing to share some information. And by and large, when law enforcement reaches out and says, look, we've got this Jane Doe or this John Doe, we think you might be related. Could you help us? They, they, the folks are generally happy to help. So we will recommend to law enforcement to reach out on occasion if we think it could either fill in missing pieces of the tree or if it might just simply um, accelerate that process, right? The, the, the goal is to identify the person. It's, it's, not, it's, not like a, it's not a competition to do it in a vacuum. So, right. so when there are folks that are willing to help, um, that can go a long ways in, in trying to get to the answers as soon as possible. And it's, uh, it's something we always think about because these families are, are waiting. They've been waiting a long time, right? So anything we can do to kind of speed up that process, we're, we're, we're very eager to help get them answers. So is there a difference in the way that you would work an identification case and the way that you would work, say, an old cold case like Carl Walker, where you know who the person is, but you just don't know who killed them? The, the, the process is very similar because in both cases, you've got an unknown contributor to the DNA and you're trying to figure out whose DNA it is. But there are some, some obvious differences. So, for example... Um, the number of folks that are that are opted in to uh, a Jane or a John Doe kind of identification, that is a larger number than the number of folks that are opted into criminal cases. So in a criminal case, there may be um, there may be less matches to start from. In a criminal case, um, you know you, you may not want to crowdfund that on DNA solves, whereas Jane and John Doe's we do crowdfund on DNA solves. Um, there, you know, you don't want to necessarily advertise on, on our website. We're coming to get you. Right. And, uh, and then, and then there's some other differences too, like how you approach, you know, you know, working the case and, you know, we, we try to treat every case as if it's going to go to court, even though obviously most Jane and John Doe's don't, um, we've had Jane and John, John Doe cases that have gone to court. So we try to treat every case the same, but there's little differences here and there and, <laughs> Excuse me. As I said, we, we try to run at the speed and, and follow the process that the law enforcement sets. And so some law enforcement agencies have different protocols when it comes to working a suspect case versus a, um, you know, a Jane or a John Doe. But, but high level, the process is basically the same, right? We've got DNA from someone we don't know. We've got some number of matches. And we're hoping these matches allow us to build a tree and then figure out where our unknown person might fit on such a tree. Wow, that really yeah. changes. I mean, this kind of has changed the face of solving crimes. Yes. I and, mean, and identifying people. And it makes me wonder. So, when you when you guys started Othram, did you start out with just doing unidentified, or did you know that you wanted to do both unidentified and you know unsolved like homicides? We started out doing both from the very, very beginning. We wanted to take intractable DNA inputs, whether it's victim or perpetrator from crime scene, and, and be able to bring answers or at least remove uncertainty from that crime scene. 
And I agree. I mean, I, I think that this technology, I can't even imagine what 10 years from now will look like. I understand that it's new technology, but this type of sequencing was new in medicine too. And, you know, a decade ago, people weren't using it to make these types of decisions. And, and all these standards had to be created and people had to accept that looking at your genome can give you some sort of um, input as far as what type of treatments you might use or or better not to use for yourself, also give you a lot of input and what might or might not um, happen to you. And I think that in forensics, we're sort of at the beginning of that. We're at the beginning of how do you use this? How do you use this information to actually help solve crimes and and to actually jumpstart investigations? And, and I think that in 10 years from now, we'll live in a world where people aren't waiting decades to find out what happened to their loved one, where DNA testing goes directly from a CODIS non-hit or STR testing into SNP testing. And within a matter of, you know, weeks, you're able to resolve all of these investigations and start getting answers. And that will lead to perpetrators getting caught the first time they commit a crime and not the second, third, fourth, and fifth. And or 12, like we've seen in the past. And, um, you know, I I think that when people start to realize that they're going to get caught, even if they left a very small amount of DNA in the crime scene, or even if they burnt the remains or tried to cover up their crime, I think that it's going to become a deterrent for crime. I think it's a matter of time before we all live in a safer world because of the power of this technology. And it's an incredible thing to be in the forefront of. Um, it's an incredible thing to meet these families that have had no closure in these cold cases and and to be able to give them answers, to be able to bring them the truth that they've been seeking for sometimes, you know, 60 years. And it's or even more than 60 years. I'm thinking about um, the Candace Rogers case out of Spokane. I mean, it's it's crazy. And even in the Carla Walker case that we're going to talk about in a little bit after this, um, when I met Jim Walker, her brother, he had spent 46 years, 46 and a half years in the same house, hoping that someone would knock on the door and tell him something about what happened to his sister. He had spent more nights than, than he wanted to recount going back to the crime scene where she was found in that culvert. And spending the night there hoping that the perpetrator would come back so he could confront him. Um, your life stops at the moment that you lose somebody or you're affected by a crime like this. And it becomes almost a everyday job trying to find the truth. And this technology is so powerful in the sense that it can give those answers to people relatively quickly. It can reopen investigations that have been closed forever. And now... Because Othram does this all in-house, because we do everything from taking the DNA at the crime scene all the way through to the courtroom, um, but through the genealogy in every every single one of these cases where we provide back investigative leads, and because we've run more evidence than anyone else on earth using this type of method, we have what we call truth sets. These truth sets allow us to know um, exactly the properties of the DNA when it comes in and exactly what method to use to actually run that DNA. 
because we have these truth sets, we know when to stop. We know now in advance if we're not going to be able to build one of these profiles. And if we're not going to be successful, then we pause. And like David said, we go back to the R&D section of the lab and we work on non-evidence until we are certain that we can. This is so important for two reasons. There is not enough funding for this type of technology yet. And that's been a huge problem all around. And um, I mean, I'm sure it's part of the reason you guys are out here advocating and talking about this on your show. It's part of the reason we have DNA Solves at all to, to help some of these cases that have no funding but do have tractable, tractable evidence get solved. At the same time, every time you run one of these DNA assays, you're destroying evidence. You, it's, a, it's a consumable test. It consumes the DNA that you've run through there. And for crimes especially, um, sometimes you only have one chance or two chances to run these assays and get someone justice. And if you don't do it right, you've destroyed someone's chance of getting justice. And so if you're solving one or two cases or 10 cases, but you've run 100 cases, are you really helping the field or are you hurting the field? Because those other 90 cases are now, they've consumed budgets, they've lowered law enforcement sort of trust in the method, and they've consumed the evidence. And sometimes the last bit of evidence so what we've done here at Authorum is we've created a process where we can tell upfront whether or not we can be helpful in an investigation. And if we cannot, we do not consume that evidence and we do not consume those budgets. And I think that's key to this actually becoming a robust and scalable process. That's part one. Part two is now that we've done this so many times and we can predict it, we can actually make it faster and better And that's what we've been working on for the last year, year and a half here. And now we're able to do what we used to be able to do in weeks and months in just days. And being able to do it in days allows you to be able to help with contemporary cases, cases that need to catch a perpetrator right now and are sort of more real time than than some of these cold cases that are out there. And I think that's going to be a seismic shift in the field. And I think that's going to show, that's going to show the synergy between CODIS testing and SNP testing and the ability to be able to do this predictively and robustly and in a way that is scalable is going to be what makes this common one day. And it's not going to be unusual to see this technology be used in an investigation. It's going to be what happens every single time. And I think that's going to make that change into having to being able to live in a safer world. Like you said, it's new technology and people don't understand it. And the education component is huge. And so David and I have sat here for more nights than either one of you want to ever imagine talking about how do you explain this? How do you explain that forensic genetic genealogy isn't just the genealogy component, that you have to have this robust laboratory method in order to be able to make those profiles, to get those DNA profiles and, and empower the genealogist to be able to do exactly what they can do really well, which is go through those records, go through those trees and identify either the victim or the perpetrator um, from that crime scene. And that they're, even though they're two completely different parts, they're completely interrelated. And if you get a profile that is missing a lot of the markers because you maybe didn't use the best method, 
then the genealogist is going to have a really hard time because some of the matches will be missing. Or if you get a profile that has extra stuff there because maybe the DNA wasn't filtered correctly from non-human DNA or from other contaminants that might be there, then you'll have all this noise that could hurt the genealogist from being able to do their job. And also, if you consume the evidence and not get anything, which happens more than than I can that's what keeps me up at night the most that I can even handle at this point, then the genealogist doesn't even have the ability to help to begin with. There's no, there's no profile there and that case is gone. And I think that that's something that people are missing because they're looking at the end part of this process. I think the name is, is forensic genetic genealogy points to the genealogy component and it doesn't necessarily point to the creating of that DNA profile, which is honestly what Othram was purpose-built to do. We have an incredible genealogy team that's run by Carla Davis, and I mean, they're incredible. They've all been in the field for decades, and they're, I mean, since this was way before even forensic genetic genealogy existed, they were genealogists, but now they've they've done this for years, and um, without them, we couldn't do what we do. But at the same time, without the actual science team that's here, they wouldn't be able to do what they do either. And you wouldn't be seeing these cases announced every week. And now we're returning leads back to investigators multiple times a day. So I can imagine in a year or so, you'll start hearing cases announced multiple times a day out of Othram. And obviously, if you look at the scale between announcements out there between the different uh, people that provide these services, you can see that Othram is is doing something different. And I get this question all the time. What is it? What's the difference? Or how have you guys built that? And the difference is the synergy between the two methods. We have experts in each and every part of this process. And again, this is all we do. We don't do any medical testing. This isn't our side hustle. We don't do any consumer testing. This is our life. Every single person at Othram comes here every single day, and the only thing they focus on is how do we identify someone from a crime scene. And I think that being purpose-built allows us to innovate only for this and become better at, at doing this. When the crime happens to the victim, it's not just them. It affects their family, mm-hmm. their friends. It can affect a neighbor. It can affect a bystander. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And so we need to remember that and just be sensitive to that. Doing this, this technology, you know, this kind of technology and this DNA genealogy testing, it is, it really, I think it's going to help. I think it's um, a whole new hope. Well, it is. And it's going to help victims' families, victims' friends, you know, it's going to help them hopefully not have to live with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so long to not have some kind of answers. Right. You're going to have this your entire life. Um, you're, it's, I don't think there is closure yeah. on that, but I think that you can find answers sooner. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, for, that is hope. I just think that's great. Yeah, Absolutely. So conducting DNA tests on Carla's clothes could cost the Fort Worth Police Department as much as $20,000. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Money that would more than likely, if they get to determine where it allocates to, is going to go toward you know an active case. So, of course, Wagner and Bennett were determined to find at least one good lead. They knew the odds were against them. And then their investigation took an unpredictable turn. Paul Holes, 
came across a pamphlet about Carla's case at a crime con and was immediately intrigued by Carla's case. And in April of 2019, his producers called Wagner and Bennett. Oxygen was willing to pay $18,000 to cover the cost of DNA testing on Carla's clothes. And of course, the detectives were thrilled. That's amazing. At a lab in California, technicians found some intact, untainted bodily fluid, not on Carla's dress, but a barely visible stain on the strap of her bra. From that fluid, they were able to develop a full DNA profile, which they uploaded to CODIS. CODIS, however, could not find a match. Holes and his producers then contacted a Texas lab that also does genealogical mapping, but technicians there had no luck either. Holes devoted an episode of his television show to the failed hunt for Carla's killer, and that seemed to be that. But after the episode aired, Holes introduced Wagner and Bennett to David Middleman, CEO of Othram, a forensic DNA testing lab located in the Woodlands, just outside of Houston. One of my colleagues and, and good friends, uh, Paul Holes, he, um, he did a, a TV show and, uh, and it, was, uh, it was called The DNA of Murder. And he, it was a 10-part uh, show. The ninth episode was on Carla Walker. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the episode, it kind of leaves with a cliffhanger. It's like a note on a black screen that just says DNA testing um, you know, will be utilized to, to look at you know, new evidence and so on and so forth. And, and that was it. So I, uh, I, called, uh, I called Paul. I told him, I said, this is in Fort Worth. It's, it's, it's in my neighborhood. Um, we're about three hours south of Fort Worth. And I asked him what happened on this case. And he told me, you know, there's no need to worry about this case. It turns out it didn't work out. They, they had tested the DNA and it came back and there was no answer. And I said, well, I'd like to take a look. I don't, I don't care if it failed. A lot of the stuff that comes to us has been unsuccessfully tested, as I told you earlier. And so we want to just look at the case anyway. to want to prematurely give up on a case that might be workable. Right. And it turns out they had, um, you know, the Fort Worth Police Department didn't have uh, the resources to do the testing on this case. And so it sounds like they had worked a deal with NBC at the time. They had funded all this advanced testing um, specifically to this case with the hope that if it was to resolve, they'd have a story to tell um, on, on their show. And uh, the testing they did resulted uh, both in, in no results in terms of an identity for this unknown male, um, but also it consumed the the entirety of that extract. And I think Kristen mentioned earlier that DNA testing is, they, well, they, they call it a destructive process, uh, which is not a mean thing. It just means a destructive process means that you, you essentially will destroy and, and consume the bits of material that you're testing. Um, and so, so DNA testing is a destructive process. You don't get the DNA back whether it works or not. And so... I asked Paul, I said, is there anything at all available? And there was another piece of DNA. It was a very small, it was about a tenth of the original amount of DNA and not, not as clean of a DNA extract. But I said, hey, I'll take what I can get. Let me, let me take a look. And so he connects me to the law enforcement officers. They're obviously uh, understandably apprehensive. They're very passionate. They care a lot about this case. They just came off of, of an unsuccessful attempt. And again, this wasn't an unsuccessful attempt using CODIS. This was an unsuccessful attempt using this same new thing we're talking about doing. So they're like, we don't want to just rush into something else. They actually drove down here, spent the day, um, interviewed um, a lab director, a 
myself, staff, and, and really immersed himself in it. And, and, and I, I give them credit for that. That's how much they care. They didn't want to take a blind uh, guess or, or just, you know, try something again. They, they did eventually develop a level of comfort. And, uh, you know, that episode, the whole series, I think, aired in April of 2020. And uh, by May, they had reached a level of comfort. And that summer, they sent us the final and last piece of DNA extract. Cool. Again, about a tenth of the DNA. It's a lot of shape. pressure. Yeah. And they said, uh, you know, we're, we're counting on you. And so um, we took it and, uh, and and put it through our process. And, you know, it's it interesting because it was, it was inferior to the other DNA evidence. And it wasn't great looking DNA. But it was actually pretty decent by Othram standards. We get we got a lot of a lot of wild stuff. It, it worked pretty well for us, and in fact, we were able to build a profile in about five weeks. And wow. as the data is coming off, my lab director takes a look. He does the initial examination of the of the data that comes off to understand things about historical origins, biogeographical ancestry. He'll do the initial uh, upload and look for matches. And as he's doing this. Um, you know, he, he's like, I, I think there's something here. And he actually pulls an all-nighter. It's on Friday night. He pulled, it was, a, it was a July 3rd. So, so you know, we had taken this case into the summer. And by July 3rd, it's off the machine. He's working through this. And uh, it was Saturday morning on July 4th that he calls me around, uh, I think, 9 a.m. And, uh, and he's like, David, I think I have uh, an answer here. We're very, we're very fluid with law enforcement. Like, I think I told you earlier, we don't like to solve things in a vacuum. We want to work very collaboratively because the goal is to get the, the answers to the families as soon as possible. The morning of July 4th, 2020, Middleman called Bennett. I call up the detective. It was uh, Detective Bennett. I call him up and uh, and, I, and he was probably still in bed. He, he didn't sound like he was awake. Hmm. But I said, I have some information to transmit to you. And we start talking about it. And before we can even get to any substantive information, I would just get to the surname and the family because I'm walking him through how we got there. He cuts me off and he's like, I recognize that last name. So Bennett began leafing through his binders and took a deep breath. He asked Middleman if anyone in that McCurley family tree was named Glenn Samuel McCurley. And he's like, "Is it? could it be this guy? And we, and we start talking and in the course of that phone call, you know, before we've even finished everything, like he's already got enough information in the preliminary examination to where he thinks he has a good chance of um, of, of, of pinpointing who this uh, person might be. And it- Middleman said, yes, there's a Glenn Samuel McCurley Sr., but he had died in 1972, two years before Carla's murder. Was there a Glenn McCurley Jr., Bennett asked? Middleman said he'd check. He hung up and called Bennett back later that day, and there was indeed a Glenn Samuel McCurley Jr., and he had been living in Fort Worth at the time of the killing. And remember, this was the truck driver at the time that passed the polygraph test, Mm -hmm. who had told the police back in 1974 that his Ruger 22 had been stolen. Turns out it's someone that was on a long list, but nonetheless a list of people that had had purchased a weapon that resembled um, the weapon that they know is used in this crime. And he was excluded in the 70s because I think he said his gun was stolen and he was out fishing and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, he was on this list. Uh, We obviously completed our analysis and they did some work on their end. But, you know, multiple lines of evidence all pointed back to the same person. 
And, um, and that's, that's, that's how that case unraveled. Wagner and Bennett did a background check on McCurley. There was very little to learn, as far as they could tell, other than his 1961 criminal conviction for stealing a car when he was 18. He had no encounters with the police. But he had passed that polygraph test. He had passed that polygraph test. Over the years, he had maintained a good reputation in his neighborhood. In 1988, the McCurley's eldest son, Craig, who was just 24, was hit and killed by a drunk driver. Neighbors had come by the house with dinners for McCurley and Judy, and Glenn was devastated about his son. McCurley was no longer driving trucks full-time by then. He took on handyman jobs and did part-time maintenance work at a fitness club. And although he wasn't educated, in his own way, he was sort of brilliant, said a woman who worked there. He could fix anything, dryers, equipment, treadmills. When she asked if she had ever noticed McCurley eyeing any of the younger females, who worked at the club, she said never. McCurley also popped up every now and then on Judy's Facebook page. She clearly adored her husband. She once posted a photo of her husband at their 1963 wedding reception in Midland. On one of his birthdays, Judy posted another photo of him as a young man and said, quote, to me, he still looks like this today. Glenn McCurley Jr., was raised in West Texas. So he was the eldest of three boys. His father, Glenn McCurley Sr., served in the Army in World War II, and he later became an insurance adjuster. According to one person who knew the family, Glenn Sr. was proud of his two younger sons who were athletes and good students, but thought McCurley was undisciplined and a troublemaker. When McCurley was a teenager, his parents sent him to the Westview Boys Home in southwestern Oklahoma. Westview, which is sponsored by the Churches of Christ, promotes itself as a place for those who are, quote, deprived due to sickness or death in their family, boys experiencing significant problems in living with their family, boys needing supervision, runaways or truants, delinquent boys, those who have violated the law but who are not in need of treatment or detention, and abandoned, abused, or neglected boys, end quote. That's a very specific... Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. So it's not clear why he was sent to this home or how long he was there for, but his stay clearly wasn't transformative because by February of 1961, he'd left Westview and was in Abilene where he stole that car. Then he abandoned that car and stole another car. And then the state highway patrol began to pursue him and actually shot out one of his tires while they were pursuing him. He drove the vehicle onto a vacant lot and attempted to escape on foot, but was quickly apprehended. He was actually in that next day's paper, the Abilene Reporter News, and the headline read, Youth Accused of Auto Theft Here. For the the car theft, in court, McCurley pled guilty and received a two-year sentence. He was released early in the spring of 1962 when he was 19 and eventually moved to Midland, where he met Judy. She was the daughter of an oilfield worker. She was an earnest student and a member of the Business Education Club. According to someone who knew her, she was a, quote, good girl uh, who didn't date much. I have some thoughts on all of that. (laughs) Do you? (laughs) My thoughts are, you see this a lot with 
the good girl and the bad boy. Well, with with serial killers in particular, you see them settle down into almost a, a quote unquote normal, normal existence, existence, yeah. and that's mm-hmm. how they keep, function, and how that's how they function, and mm-hmm. how they keep themselves from out found out. They yeah. keep this, you know, and facade, facade, right. Yeah, and that's that's important to them because that that control is important to them in their life. And he was a bigger guy, like like a large man. Um, he had close cropped brown hair, dark brown eyes, those big old Johnny Cash sideburns. You know what I'm talking about? My dad um, had those <laughs> back in the day. He did. He 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 had Elvis Presley. He's like that's what he. Had. I think that was just the thing for the times. You know, in uh, February 16th, 1963, he married Judy. In a Baptist church. Uh, At the reception, a photographer snapped a picture of them cutting the cake, doing all the, like, very normal things. What day did you say that was? February 16th, 1963. Oh, my God. But wait a second. February 16th might have been, like, his wedding day might have been his trigger day. Killed her on the 16th. Oh, my God. We need to circle back to that. Um, yes, very normal life. They moved into this small rent home. He got a job as a truck driver for the U.S. Postal Service. He had a route to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, they had two boys, Craig and Roddy. And then in 1972, McCurley moved his young family to a neighborhood in West Fort Worth. There, he got another truck driving job, hauling prefabricated slabs of concrete to construction sites. Judy actually took a job at their church's daycare center. One of the parents there had said that McCurley wasn't as personable as his wife, but he maintained a good reputation. In his free time, he dropped by the Wrigley West Baptist church to mow the lawn and to make repairs around the church on his own time he performed odd jobs for his neighbors he tinkered with their car engines and you know helped them replace faulty electrical wiring in their homes like the average good guy in the neighborhood right that's that's always the facade the helpful good guy it is but at the same time this is a lot of times when they can scope out other people's homes. They can scope out other people's routines. They mm-hmm. can, even if they're not planning on hurting them, they can get information from people in general on this, on these kind of things. Yeah. One man who knew McCurley did note a distasteful habit. Quote, he'd see a pretty girl and say something like, take a look at that. But he never said anything vulgar about her, at least not to me. He wasn't, what's the word, creepy, end quote. I think that's all in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) He and Judy seemed to enjoy a healthy marriage. Uh, He had friends. Um, A man who was friends with Craig said that Craig's dad, quote, never said or did anything that I thought was in any way inappropriate. To me, Mr. McCurley was just another dad in the neighborhood, end quote. So I want to switch back to Jim. For just a second, Carla's brother, he would occasionally, you know, he moved into the family home. He would occasionally jog down Vickery Boulevard past a street called Mark's Place. On that street, in a small, tan, one-story house, lived Glenn McCurley and his family. Wow. I know. 
Jim had no idea who the McCurleys were. He had never met them. Um, he'd never met their kids. He was, let's see, he was two years behind Craig at Western Hills High, but they did actually go to the same high school. Jim actually says, quote, who knows, maybe our families stood in the same line at the grocery store, or we pulled up to the same traffic light on Camp Bowie Boulevard, or we sat next to one another at Polito's. Every year we had a big family garage sale, which brought out a lot of people in the neighborhood. I've always thought Glenn McCurley might have stopped at one of our garage sales, end quote. Wagner and Bennett decide to pay him a visit. They arrive unannounced at the McCurley's home. Judy and Glenn politely invited the detectives into the living room and chatted with them. Wagner and Bennett were actually recording the conversation at the time. And McCurley talked about his old truck driving gigs. Judy also mentioned that her husband suffered from diabetes and that he had recently had surgery to remove a tumor the size of a quarter on his liver. And he was diagnosed with cancer. Judy told the detectives about, you know, about Craig's death and she said that their younger son, Rodney, lived with his wife and four children outside of Fort Worth. You know, just pleasantries. Finally, McCurley asked the detectives, quote, what do y'all want to talk about? End quote. Which is interesting to me. <laughs> I know. Wagner said, you know, we're going to take you way back. Back to 1974. Quote, y'all are living here at the time, so you may have heard about it. There was a young lady kidnapped from a bowling alley. End quote. Judy immediately jumps in and says, I know exactly who you're talking about. You're talking about Carla Walker. Judy later told detectives that she could remember where the Walker family lived at. They kept her room the same way it was, she said. Like, she knew intimate details about, you know, the inside of the house. Quote, they kept her car still parked in the driveway for years and years. You'd drive by and see that car in the driveway. It was just absolutely heartbreaking, end quote. And you have no idea who you're sitting next to. I know. Wagner said that she and Bennett had reopened the murder investigation and were contacting those who had been interviewed by the police in 1974. Bennett had told him, you know, we saw that your name was on that list, that they had talked to you. Wagner asked McCurley then if she could take a DNA sample. You know, she said, it's, it'll be easy to eliminate you as a suspect. And of course, he hesitated. He then took a pen, signed a consent form, opened his mouth, and let them swab his cheek. What choice did he have at that point, I know. Though? Then the last thing he said to them was, quote, I hope you find out who killed Carla. That girl needs to be remembered as someone who mattered. Still keeping up that facade to the last second. It took them 11 days to get the match back. And it it was a match. Yeah. That's so quick because it used Mm -hmm. to take months and months and years to get DNA back. It took 11 days. And they verified that the DNA from the cheek swab perfectly matched the DNA found on Carla's bra strap. And, of course, the members of the U.S. Marshal's North Texas Fugitive Task Force arrived at his home to arrest him. He was driven downtown to the police department, where he waived his right to a lawyer being present during his interrogation. And for several minutes, he sat alone in an interview room. Wagner and Bennett come in. They start talking to him. They ask him, you know, do you remember us? You know, 
we talked to you earlier, she placed a photo of Carla on the table and she said, you know, we're here to talk about the murder of this young lady. McCurley looked at the picture for a moment and then he said, quote, I don't know who she is, end quote. Bennett pointed at the photo and said, quote, Mr. McCurley, can you look at that picture and just tell me for a minute? Just tell us for sure that you do not know who she is. He picked up the picture, examined it more closely, and again said, I've never seen her before. He thinks, again, he beat the polygraph. He's going to be smarter than them is what he thinks in his mind. And then he said, quote, I wouldn't know if she were standing beside me, end quote. If he's a serial killer, maybe he forgot that one. I know. Because he was in the area. All those other women, that's still unsolved. And I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. They even brought up his cancer. Um, You know, at one point, Wagner said, you know, we know you're sick. Um, How are you going to make things right before you pass away if you don't admit to what you've done? Uh, Bennett even leaned forward at one point in his chair and asked McCurley who else he might have killed. Bennett said, quote, there were a lot of homicides that occurred during that time, and we're trying to find out if you're this mean, ugly serial killer, or if this is just something that happened that night and was a mistake, end quote. So, like, he even thinks that maybe he's the same guy. Yeah, I'm telling you, I I think I'm... mm, Leading. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to lead my listeners. <clears throat> That's who did it. <laughs> That's who did it. <laughs> All right. So McCurley continued to deny that he'd ever met Carla um, for more than over an hour. He like wouldn't budge on that. Uh, Wagner tried a different appro- approach. She said, quote, I imagine it's been difficult to keep this from your wife all these years. Y'all have been married for over 50-something years. I'm sure she's your best friend. You do everything together. You tell her everything. And you've had this one secret that you've kept all this time. And that was smart. I know. Using and then on the empathy. I know. And on top of that, Bennett added, quote, you know that you want to get this off your chest. It's been too long. It's been too many years. Her family deserves answers, end quote. So he finally began to crack. He said, the first thing he said was, quote, then I go to the electric chair. I get hung or whatever. That's the first thing he said. And then he said that if he were sent to prison, quote, I can't take care of my wife, end quote. I still think that's, I think that that was just uh, feel sorry for me type of answer. So after some assurances, you know, that Judy would be taken care of, he kind of turns his head to the floor and kind of sits there for a minute and he starts to get these what look like tears welling up in his eyes and he says, quote, okay, I did do it, I guess. Still no empathy. Empathy for himself. That's what I mean by saying taking care of his wife that he was still playing the victim because this is empathy not for his wife. This is empathy for him. Yeah. He went on to tell the detectives that on the afternoon of February 16th, 1974, he drunk whiskey and beer for several hours and he began driving around and, quote, parked in some parking lots, end quote. And at one point he drove to the bowling alley. It seemed like at that point that he was about to make this big confession. But instead, he ended up telling detectives that he had heard, quote, a girl screaming in a nearby car. 
and said he went over there to see if he could help. And he said, quote, this big guy had her up and against the door, jerking her around, end quote. He said he opened the front passenger door, got into a, quote, tussle, end quote, with the boy, pushed him off of Carla, led her back to his car, and then drove her to another parking lot. He said she started hugging him and thanking him, and one thing led to another, and they had sex. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's so stupid. I can't even... Then he said he just let her out of the car and then never saw her again. Oh, because that's a good citizen. <laughs> just absolute wow. The detectives at this time are sitting there and they're like, they're like, oh my, like what, what is happening here? And of course they're trying to remain sympathetic because they think that if they can remain sympathetic, then they can coax that real confession out of him. Like, he still repeatedly said the same thing over and over again. It was consensual. You know, we had sex. She wanted it. All this stuff. But he was married at the time. Let's he, just he was. remember that. And it was his anniversary, I'd like to add. It was. It was his wedding anniversary. It was. Because yeah. he was married on the 16th of February. Which I think could have been a, a trigger for him. No, that would be a trigger. But to the outside world... He had made it look like he's happy. So to the outside world, there wouldn't be a trigger. No. But to him... But to him, I think that it was some sort of internal trigger. If he had been drinking all day on his own anniversary, like that just seems... And you weren't with your spouse? You weren't with your spouse. Yeah. It makes me wonder what Judy looked like. Because I've never seen a picture of Judy. It makes me wonder if maybe she resembled Carla when she was younger real big coincidence that he would kill Carla Walker on his wedding anniversary. On the 16th. Yeah. I just think that that's, that can't possibly be a coincidence. Anyway, that's just my opinion. He kind of changes his story a little bit and says, oh, well, you know, when we were done having sex, I did start choking her because I was afraid that she would tell on me or something. That's what, that's what he says. Again, about him. But again, he says, oh, well, she was alive when I left her. Like, I didn't choke her to death. I just choked her a little bit. <laughs> it's so stupid. That's so stupid. It is. Stu- it is. That's stupid. You know, they're like, okay, well, how do you know that she wasn't dead when you left? And he said, oh, well, she was standing up by herself against a car when I left. So the more and more they talk to him, the more his claims become confounding Like, for instance, he never mentioned Carla's body being stuffed into a culvert. He said that he had left her next to a building near the Brunswick, or near the bowling alley, um, quote, down toward the Mexican eating place down there at the red light, end quote. And, And then it makes me wonder, like, is he the serial killer? Is he getting her confused with another girl? Was there a body found there, one of these girls? You know, it makes me wonder. You don't know what kind of mental state he was in. No. But he obviously remembered that he, his memory was intact enough to know that he did it. Oh my gosh. The next sentence. So Bennett also wondered if McCurley was mixing up the details of Carla's killing with a different murder. He says, quote, is there another girl that you might have done this to as well? End quote. That's weird. And then, of of course, you know, McCurley says, oh, no, this was the one night thing. You know, no, that never happened. I don't kill people. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. 
So it was the afternoon of September 21st, 2020. The officer in charge of this operation I'm about to tell you about was a 22-year police veteran named Travis Edelman. Now, they had let him leave, go home. Travis Edelman stepped onto the front porch and rang his doorbell. He was 77 at this time. He opens up the door and he was six foot three, very large man, like I said. He weighed 240 pounds, but at the time he's 77 years old. He looks a little frail. Police officers, they're all wearing bulletproof vests. They're piling out of these unmarked cars. They're fanning around his house. You know, they're they're waiting for him to put up a fight. You know, they ask him, you know, are you Glenn McCurley? He didn't wait for an answer. And he tells him, you're under arrest. Please step out. Do it now. Witnesses, you know, that were there that day would say that he seemed uh, confused at the time. That he turned and looked at his wife who had, you know, came up beside him wearing a bathrobe and leaning on a cane. And as the officers handcuffed him, Judy told Edelman that her husband was sick with cancer and that he was scheduled to see a doctor later that day. Uh, He had actually resided in that home at that time for 50 years. Right there, right down the road from Carla Walker's house. And I have to admit, in his booking pictures... He looks confused in those pictures, too. And I don't see the confusion of him not being cognitively aware. I see the confusion of how did they get me? Mm -hmm. Because I I was too smart for them. They, at this time, also considered him a, quote, person of interest, end quote, in at least three of the other killings during that time. At least three. So, obviously, that's an ongoing investigation. I don't know the exact details, but I do know that in some way they have connected him or think he's connected in at least three of those other women's murders. After speaking to his court-appointed attorneys, McCurley pled not guilty. His attorneys argued in their court filing that the Othram Labs DNA test was flawed and that Wagner and Bennett had coerced McCurley into a false confession. The attorneys also tried to portray McCurley as some feeble old man dying of cancer that possessed no threat to anybody. You're saying he's He poses no threat now, but what about the people that he killed? What about Carla? And does that make it okay now that you're not healthy that oh he's not healthy so you know slap on the wrist don't kill nobody. it doesn't matter what he did in the past no that's no i mean it's a it's a matter of being held accountable exactly the prosecutors actually persuaded a judge to set his bond at five hundred thousand dollars and nine months later on june 16th 2021 at the first pretrial hearing open to the public judy and her son were there jim was also there Carla's brother with his wife Beverly and he asked Beverly you know to lead him over to Roddy and he introduced himself as Carla's brother and you know he eventually Roddy eventually said you know I'm sorry he eventually replied you know he kind of broke out into tears and he he said um you know he just kind of wasn't sure what to do and you know for years he had been thinking of ways that he would exact revenge on his sister's killer. Like, he spent his whole childhood gearing up for facing this man. And he said, you know, when he came face to face with his killer's son, he he couldn't feel anger anymore. 
you know, and he just told him, like, it's not your fault. Like, you can't be held accountable for what your dad did. He was a victim in this, too. Yes, he was. Absolutely. So was Judy, his entire family. Again, ripple effect. Yes. Uh, Jim even stated, quote, your dad devastated your family just like he devastated mine, end quote. Well, I mean, just think about being his child and learning that what your parent has done Mm -hmm. and trying to grapple with that in your mind of of someone that you thought you knew. Mm-hmm. That would be really hard. Yeah. I can't imagine. Uh, so, you know, in trial, they presented all the evidence. They put Rodney on the stand. Um, they presented the new DNA stuff. Um, they put uh, the detectives up there. Um, they showed him the dress, crime scene photos, you know, everything. And they also played three hours of the videotaped interview that Wagner and Bennett had conducted with him after his arrest with McCurley. Oh, so they played that. They played it in court. Then they revealed a surprise piece of evidence, which was McCurley's 22 Ruger, the gun. The gun. Which he had claimed had been stolen. And the police af- actually discovered it during a search of his home Hidden away in a compartment above a door. So he's had it that whole time. He had it that whole time. The whole time. Of course, they matched it. Now, not only do we have this kind of confession, not only do we have the DNA evidence, but we also have the gun. We have the weapon. We have it. It's a really good case against him. That's pretty strong. Yes. It was kind of considered an open and shut case. On the third day of trial, McCurley changed his plea to guilty. Because he knew at that Because he knew. And the judge quickly sentenced him to life in prison. Jim and Cindy were allowed to make witness impact statements. Jim elected to stand directly in front of McCurley. And he said, quote, You've done this to other families. And you need to confess and bring closure to these other victims' families. So they're still investigating him for possible connections to Becky Martin and, and all these other girls. They're still investigating him for that. You know, where a large portion of this, of our, my source for this episode comes from, is the Texas Monthly article. The reporter asked him, did he end his own trial with a guilty plea? And McCurley responded with, quote, I'd had enough hounding. The judge wouldn't let me talk. Everybody believed that policewoman and policeman, but nobody was hearing my side of the story, end quote. Technology and DNA, you know, genealogy and all these things that we've advanced in in DNA out. And so we can we can get these families help before mm-hmm. they live most of their life like this. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's a case that I'm really grateful that both Fort Worth uh, PD and Paul Holes trusted us on because remember that's a case where the results initially came back as, as no results and that DNA um, was consumed and that case would have gone into the trash can. And as I'm sure you guys know, uh, the guy that was responsible for that crime was still alive and living in the neighborhood, hiding yeah. in plain sight. And wow. so this is why it's so important to us to, to leave no case behind and to really examine cases, whether they failed before whether something else happened because you just you just never know you know the the techniques that are utilized for these cases you know if they're not forensic and they're not done in the right way 
and they don't accommodate for the kind of imperfections that forensic DNA has, then, then they're going to look like they're intractable. But the reality is most of them are not. They're all workable. It just takes a little bit of a different process. And I think you guys can appreciate that. Like, if you, if you didn't need a forensic process, then why are there crime labs? I mean, why do we have jobs? Like, the whole reason, right? So it, it is, it is. I would say, not to sound controversial, but I would say it's almost a crutch. It's almost irresponsible to use a research or medical lab. Uh, you, you know, it may have made sense in the early days because there was no other option and people were looking to do more than CODIS. But now that there's established forensic protocols, um, it's, it's, you know, in my opinion, irresponsible to go pursue the testing in, in labs that aren't suited for forensic evidence because, you know, regardless of what they may or may not tell you, if, if this evidence is not processed correctly, it'll be consumed and you may end up with no answer. And again, Carla Walker's case would have been uh, a true tragedy. It would have been a second, it would have been a second victimization to, um, to, to both uh, experience and survive the first case and then only to find out that the remaining evidence was consumed with no answer. It's, uh, right. it, was just, it would have been a terrible outcome. Yeah. But the good news is, uh, as I said, you know, and I don't know if you guys know much about Paul Holes, but he used to be an investigator. Yeah, and we love Paul Holes. Yes. Yeah, he used to, <laughs> Big fan. He used to yes. work in a forensic lab. So it's, it's, it's just it's so much fortuitous, um, you know, luck that, that Paul does have that kind of, um, he has, he has the, 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 the ability and the nuance to understand forensic process, laboratory process, and he understood there there, there may be a better forensic method to employ. So, um, anyways, probably more yeah. than he wanted to know, but that's how that case unfolded. Yeah, you know, he he even actually mentions uh, the Carla Walker case in his book Unmasked. So, yeah, yeah. I, he's a very passionate person. And we have much respect that's for him. Yes, is in the end of his book. Yeah, there's a little piece of the story where he and I had chatted. That's a uh, immortalized in his book so mm-hmm. yeah calls david as friend and that's very sweet and and honestly carla walker's case means so much more than just you know yes the perpetrator was arrested and the perpetrator went through trial and is now serving life in prison and that's incredible because that's that shows that you're not even if you've gotten away with it for decades it doesn't mean that you've actually gotten away with a crime and that there's still a chance that your case will end up you know, in our lab or someone else's lab and, and allow um, the chance for justice. But the parts that I think people, people may not know of this story are, you know, Rodney. Rodney was in the car when Carla was pulled out and um, I've had the privilege to meet Rodney. Rodney told me that he had not seen the sun in 47 years, that he had felt like he had lived under this dark cloud of suspicion. I was present when Jim Walker and Rodney saw each other for the very, very first time after the correct person was identified as as the perpetrator of this crime. And they both cried because they Rodney was part of their family. He had given Carla a promise ring, um, Jim was only 12 years old at the time. He was like a brother. And all of a sudden, everyone thought that he might have had something to do with the actual crime. Um, And it was devastating. His life was devastated by it. But finally, now he can hold his head up and and people know that he had nothing to do with it. And that's huge. Um, So every time we identify the correct perpetrator, all these people that might have been suspect, whether they were ever prosecuted or not, um, finally get that to live their life without that suspicion. And that's big. 
Also, we went to Carla's celebration of life. There were hundreds of people there, and that's not an exaggeration. Friends, family. Um, you're so right when you say that a crime doesn't affect just a few people. It affects. It has a ripple effect. Um, Jeff Bennett, Leah, uh, the detectives on this case, their life was affected by it. As you can see, he had the file with him. He, as soon as David said the name McCurley, he said, oh, my God, he's on the list. And he ran over there and grabbed the file and started ruffling through. He knew the names. There were hundreds of them. He knew the names on the list by heart because these people, they work these crimes day and night and they don't give up and they continue to try and try and try. And even being able to solve the case for their sake means the world to them. The prosecutor in this case, I mean, she she did an incredible job, Kim Davignon. It was just, it was a team. It was a real collaboration of, of a lot of amazing people um, coming together and really making a difference and showing how this would work if it was done correctly. And so things that came out of it. Hoping to raise money to pay for more DNA testing like this in more cold cases, Bennett formed a nonprofit foundation called FWPD Cold Case Support Group. Jim Walker actually joined the board of that. Oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. great. He, promising to donate to the foundation some of the profits from the sale of his family home, which he finally decided to move out of. After he... After he got some closure. He is quoted saying, I don't need to be living here anymore thinking about my mom crying in her bathroom or my dad with his metal box. I don't need to be reminded of Carla's murder every time I walk down the hallway. It's time to let things go, end quote. Now Carla Walker is sort of the example as far as um, what's going into Congress. We have a congressman, Um, Kelly Armstrong actually put forth the Carla Walker Act in 2022 to show what's possible in some of these cold cases uh, because it was the first time that FGG was actually called in a jury trial. We had to testify in a Daubert hearing. We were cross-examined in front of the jury. It was admitted. And that is part of what led to to his confession. It became an example even at the federal level. And now they are trying to create a pot of funding for this type of testing to help cases where there are no DNA leads um, through CODIS testing and where they're kind of stuck. They're at a DNA dead end. And so I'm super thrilled and excited about that. I know Jim Walker and the rest of the family is sort of the the advocates behind this Carla Walker Act, and it has become their purpose to um, help others get the sort of answers that they needed so much. Jim actually told me that he had spent his whole life every single day. He actually told me the number of days. It was 18,000. 200 and something. I can't remember the exact number, but it was, he had counted the number of days he had waited to find out the truth about his sister. And he had told me that now he can, for the first time, find purpose for the rest of his life. And then in a later conversation told me that his purpose now is to help others get the um, closure. And it's not closure. Like you said earlier, you're a hundred percent right. They're never going to get closure for what happened to them. But it's at least closure on the case. It's the truth is out there and justice has been served. And he got to face that perpetrator in court. And he got to hear what actually happened to his sister. And um, honestly, Jim is one of the most incredible men I've ever, I've ever met. He hugged 
Jim McCurley's son in front of me in court and and told him that he is also a victim and that he is part of their family now and with tears all over their face. And that is compassion at a level that I can't describe. Um, he's out there trying to make a difference and in the federal level right now is incredible. And I know that he will because you hear his story and, and you know that that's, that's his purpose. For the lay person that wants to get involved, they want to contribute their DNA or they want to help crowdfund or, or, you know, whatever it is, what can they do to get involved? So there's three ways. We created DNA Solves just for that purpose. Um, On DNA Solves, you can go and you can filter by solved cases. You can even filter by state if you want to look at the cases that are in your area. And then you can read those stories. Each one of them is so different. Some have trace amounts of DNA. Some are investigations. Some are current. Some are very 62 years old. Wow. I mean, we identified a victim from 1881. Some are wow. over 100 years old. Wow, wow. That's, so, awesome. that's awesome. Um, but you can read the stories on there, and you can very easily share those stories on your social media platform. It's extremely, extremely helpful right now for people to educate others on what's possible with this technology and how powerful it really is. So that's number one. Number two is we have crowd funds on there in cases that we have right now. We know that the DNA is tractable because it's past QC, but unfortunately they don't have funding through the law enforcement agency. And so contributing even a couple dollars um, would help that case get tested. And that's incredible. And the third way that you guys can help is by, like you said earlier, entering your DNA into DNA Solves because that will help the next cold case have better matches and solve even faster and even a current case and get a perpetrator off the streets. Solve at Othram.com is our, our main email address where you guys can communicate with us at any time. Um, if there's a case out there you want um, our law enforcement liaisons to look into, just you can put the case details on there. If, um, Like you said, never lose hope. Um, technology isn't, isn't perfect right now, but it's going to get there, and we're going to be able to solve as many of these cases as possible. It's a matter of time. And if people were responsible about how they consume evidence and budgets, I think we'll become part of or integrated in the forensic science sort of part of investigations. And I truly believe that um, the impact will be obvious to everyone and we'll all live in a safer world because of it. And I'm so beyond grateful that you guys are um, educating people on this and that you had us on the show. It means a lot. Thank you. You touched my heart when you when you asked us to be on there. And, and the Carla Walker case, really, their whole family means the world to me. And so that one always touches my heart. So I'm always willing to talk on it. And again, we want to thank Othram so much for yes. coming on this episode and, you know, telling us about DNA and um, genetic genealogy and the mountains that, you know, this sort of technology is starting to move and, you know, solving cases like this. So we really want to thank them for their work. Thank you so much. And for being on with us. And, um, you know, we hope that there are way more solves in the future. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro?
That's our outro, isn't it? 